just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Good old boys. I'm Mark. Bog beef. Is that my turn now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I missed my prompt. Uh, yeah, I'm Sam. Sam Samuel, the illegitimate scholar. Samuel, you are. You have a. Um, let's just dive right into the subject. So, uh, what's what stuck out to me? The one reason we're going to talk to you is that you have a background in anthropology. That is, uh, that's very enticing um, to talk about on a podcast like this. Uh, let me just start out. Let's just say, uh, well, anthropology began as the most based science, uh, social science, and it became the least based social science. So it's you know it's going to yeah. be interesting. Well, Absolutely, it really did. Have you ever? How many times have you had dysentery? <laughs> <laughs> um, never. No, I almost got trench foot once, but uh, no, no dysentery. Now that's one of the like you don't. If you look at the people who are, uh, quote unquote, leading anthropologists now, I don't think they do this stuff anymore. But when you go back to the the OG guys, it's always like, you know. Sir Lord of Ham- Earl of Hamburger is in the jungle, and uh, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I mean, you know, mixed in with things like um, exploration, uh, all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is this is like uh, very exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah, that type of a- of archaeology. I mean, you're going back to like 19th century and even before then. Like this was really before like the fields in uh, in colleges were there. They weren't in the same way that they are now. Like these were just rich guys who were essentially funding expeditions and trying to make a name for themselves. Um, And then, you know, later it's still professors who are still often members of the ruling class, members of the elite. Right. Well, I mean, in my mind, I'm sure there, there, of course, there's uh, and you also were a history teacher. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I got my history uh, teaching certification. I did like a full load. I was an intern, and then I did my student teaching, and then I never got a job as a teacher, but I am a certified history teacher, yeah. And I, I have taught a full load as a student teacher. Right on. Like, so, I mean, you know, my, the first uh, – this is – I'm sure it's not the first anthropologist, but the first thing I can think of is uh, Julius Caesar sort of going into uncharted lands, and he'll say – and, you know, he would write down, he'd say, well, these people – uh, this is how, this is, um, this is the kind of house they live in. They have tattoos. They don't, um, that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of like the most basic anthropology we would think of, right? Yeah. So, uh, specifically like anthropology is a little bit more broad. Like it means like the study of humans. So like what you're describing and, and what it is would be, um, something called, uh, ethnography, like participant observation. And this is something that a cultural anthropologist would do. And that's that's the field that most of my experience is in is is cultural anthropology. Um, but yeah, him him doing that, that that's him acting as a cultural anthropologist, looking at a people, studying their customs and uh, their material culture, which is like their clothes, their pottery, things like that, um, as well as like body body uh, painting is in and body modification with tattoos and piercings and things like that. Okay, let's just go straight to the most exciting question and then that that i think that can can do everything for us for the rest of for, uh we'll, we'll, this will be very easy okay so when you look at what you just said like uh this ethnography which by the way uh if you look at all the most uh popular like 
like whenever people post like the, the most woke, absurd things coming out of the Academy, uh, it's, it's a lot of times it has ethnography attached to it. But if you just, but if you, if you read what ethnography is or just, or this kind of thing, you're like, you could never like you would like the first sentence you wrote, you'd be violating the civil rights act. So <laughs> how does the modern field, um, how did they trans like, do you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm asking here? Yeah. So I, I, I think I know what you're asking. And l- let me let me tell you something that I think will shed some light. So one of the most basic terms in anthropology and uh, cultural anthropology specifically is something called uh, cultural relativism, which means that instead of judging a society by your own standards, you judge that society by um, their own standards. Everything's like, beautiful. Everything's all beautiful, man. It's, it's, it, everything's the same. It's all beautiful. They uh, they expose their children when they're two, when they're one years old. They just leave them out to die, uh, or it's but it's all beautiful, man. Everything's cool. It's and it, the the thing is and the thing is that like they say that and they they say that they do that and then you like like one of my favorite ethnographies I've read um, is on like the Rastafarians in Jamaica and I'm hearing stories of them like beating their wives and stuff. But the person writing the book is like, but, but their society is not misogynistic. This is just like the way they do things. So like they literally put a warning in the beginning where they're like, no, they're not, they're not, they're not beating people. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's all, it's all, it has an element like that. But then the flip side of that is that like, they believe they're being cultural relativists by judging a society by its own standards. But then these same type of people, and I know like with you you guys, like they will be the first ones to like look down on white Southern culture and look down on somebody like having the Confederate flag, you know, for example, rather than applying cultural relativity to some, to someone like that, they would just, you know, say like, Oh, but they're American. So that's our culture. So I, so they're bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, cult- cultural relativism was, I think it used to be actually what they believed when they were still trying to win the culture war. Because what it really meant was, when you say you have to be a cultural relativist, it means you have to put away your own your own uh, values and ideas, and you have to basically denigrate your denigrate the things that you were taught. And that was really valuable when they weren't in charge. But now that they're in charge. You had this weird situation where it's like, well, you, you can't, you know, oh, the Jamaican guy said burn down all the chi-chis. Well, you, you, you have to understand the context of what he's saying. But if, if we're talking about, you know, oh, your, your ancestors, Civil War grave, we should dig him up and throw his body into the Potomac River like he's a, a, a pope on, on tr- uh, trial after he died. Yeah. And yeah. they don't see, they don't see the, the conflict in this because... They only care about who's a friend and who's an enemy. That's what it comes down to. Right. So like if they if there was actual applied cultural relativity, which is what I try to do, like I try to really apply it across like all all cultures. It's useful to apply cultural relativity if you are if you're looking at it from an academic perspective and you're trying to like compare two societies um, and they're they're like their baseline traits. If you're trying to compare two societies and they each have specific traits, what you don't want is your own biases from your own cultural upbringing to be, um, to be like, so that you're not describing that society based on like the facts of what they do. 
You know, like just basically not passing judgment on what they're doing, even if like by the standards of your society, if you looked at someone like the Aztecs, you'd of course be like, wow, they're sacrificing people. That's really bad, which it is. That's part like because uh, what if we used to hear like this whole like everything's beautiful. We can never, ever judge. We can never judge. That is gone. That was re- that used to be really big. That was like a like the way like uh, ever since like um uh, 2014 or so all libs talk about is like American race stuff. But in the two thousands, I mean like all this other, they were interested in all this other kind of thing. And that was the thing they would talk about. And I mean, uh, the way you word it, of course, like, you know, when right wing men are discussing history, we're cultural relativists. And I think that it's in fact, you're, you, of course you should be relativist in, in toward, and this is where like, I think one of the issues is, is when we have a, uh, something happened now uh, with a client group of the Democrat Party. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need a ton of context here. We need all this context. Whereas in the in the past, they are the first ones to tell you that uh, they they now they proudly say they do not use cultural relativism uh, for the <laughs> for the past and all this kind of like that's, you know, these evil white men and stuff. Yeah, of course. And and. <laughs> Yeah, there's not, um, it doesn't, it, there's no consistency across, like, what is a current progressive idea. You know, if you had the opinions of the average person today versus 10 years ago, the average person 10 years ago is going to be just completely offensive. But I think there's another element to that in that, like, if, and and this is true in the legal system in a way, it's like this, my most recent episode was on how the law is weaponized. Um, you know, in, in the United States, we have 5,199 federal laws. Uh, they didn't have the technology in 1983 to count them. They, they literally didn't. But today, they had to do like a study. They had to use data to find out how many laws we have. And what you see with like, look, I'm not, I'm, I'm like a libertarian guy. I'm not like a Trump guy, but I am a rule of law kind of guy and a, um, and a political order like consistency kind of guy because you need the, um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, um, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, he's a neoliberal, um, he's a neoliberal uh, political scientist. He wrote awful book, the the end of history and the last man. But he actually has a really good two part history on the um, the origins of political order, and um, with something like the Trump indictment and where we have like fifteen fifty two hundred federal laws. And a, a guy wrote a book called Three Felonies a Day, talking about how the average American commits three felonies a day. Um, what they can basically do, what they can do with federal law, as well as what they, they being the donor class, the ruling class, they can um, find anybody and they can say, like, find the man and I will show you the crime, like Stalin's head of the chief of police, Beria. And if there are so many things that are considered offensive, what you can do is just pick anybody and then find something they said that is now considered offensive, find something they did was illegal, and we'll just weaponize the law or we'll weaponize public opinion um, with, you know, a media that's controlled by six specific companies, and we can just destroy this person's life. I mean, it's what they tried to do with Elon Musk. It's what they tried to do with Joe Rogan. Um, and you can do it to somebody if they're involved in all of these mainstream social constructs, but it's not as it's they don't have as much control in these uh, other things like, you know, independent podcasting, which is why Joe <laughs> Rogan was able to get out unscathed from this and why we can have this conversation here because if i was saying stuff like this in a college classroom i'd you know i'd be like yelled at by people 
Yeah, the, uh, and, you know, I'm sure a cynical person would say this is the truth, true of every legal system. But the more complex your legal system is, the the better opportunity they have to do this. Which is if, if there if there are six thousand federal laws, yeah, you're gonna break you're gonna break one of them on a weekly or you know daily basis. And, and if you with selective enforcement, then you can terrorize your political enemies. Like today, for example, right right before we we went we began this recording, the former president of the United States got was officially indicted by the state of New York uh, on a, a misdemeanor charge of, uh, I guess improperly uh, improperly reporting the finances of his hush <laughs> money payment to a pornographic movie star an nda with somebody you're having an affair with is a tuesday for a politician like yeah this is insane it's and it's not that i don't think that he did something wrong i mean i think he's done a lot of things wrong but at the same time show me the epstein client list why is trump being arrested and why are all these other things and the you know the selective enforcement thing in the context of what you what you were doing before you got out of the game you just just saying the wrong thing in uni- and and in the classroom can already get you fired. It, right. It's happened many times. Yeah, I, it, it's not a big step away from that. To you could be charged with a crime for your speech because we see this happen in Canada and the UK already. Absolutely, yeah, it's happening. And people are kind of don't talk about it as much as I think they should. I mean, of course, in like spaces like ours, we talk about it, but in general, it's like. People don't talk about it. Like the what happened with the trucker convoy, Prime mm. Minister Blackface up there freezing people's bank accounts. Like I hate. Like that scared the crap out of me. What happened in Australia? What happened in the UK with the crazy shutdowns? Like the Anglo sphere is not doing well, boys. It really is not. America, we have Ricky Vaughn, <laughs> who was arrested for memes. <clears throat> um, he, he posted a meme. It said like. Uh, Skip the lines. Vote for Hillary by texting Hillary to to what number? You know, it's oh, it's a really old joke in American. Like you come out and vote on Wednesday for your preferred candidate, but yeah. they charged him with the federal. He's he's been charged with a federal crime, and yeah, it, it, it's it, there aren't many people who post online about politics who have not, by that standard, committed a felony. James Madison said something um, about this. He said something like, uh, "If it doesn't matter if the laws are passed by elected representatives, if they be so voluminous that nobody uh, can make any sense of them," and that's you know that's where we're at. And it's it obviously is used by like there are individuals who are guided by their own personal ideology or or some other group um, that are interested in using the law um, as a tool as as a hammer to bludgeon their political personal enemies. Um, and that's not good for a uh, a society, especially like ours, that has record low trust in in institutions across <laughs> the board, especially the last two years. You know, it's not just teachers that are at in all time job openings. It's also the military. It's uh, it's a lot of different places. And I, I think, you know, I'm probably not alone here in that, you know, the empire is showing signs of decline. <laughs> well, and see, that that's why I, I mean. This isn't like the strongest held opinion in the world, but I mean, I, my feeling on this is that um, this is like a, uh, a cyclical history thing, and it's basically it's like it's like this. Let's say you're McDonald's and you're McDonald's in the fifties or the sixties. The way you need to make more money is to introduce more people to McDonald's into more markets. Hey, hey, France, check out we've got this cool thing called McDonald's. You'll love it. And uh, we really want to uh, to expand there. 
And America has sort of, uh, there, we're not really the expanding anymore. And so, but the old, but I think when we were, when we were trying to take over the world, uh, which we've done was to say, we're America. We have this system. We have these values. We have these, uh, these Norman Rockwell paintings. You behave like the, in these paintings, uh, we have these cool, uh, we have pounds and, 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 uh, and, 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 and inches and feet. We're going, this is the system. This is the Imperial system. And you can sign on to this and it'll be pretty good. In fact, it, we're also, we're kind of competing with this other system that's out here in the Soviet union. And so, uh, our stuff is really good. Well, all because your expansion is the way to make the most money or in the, in that way. Now it's not, everything is always trying to expand, expand. Every bureaucrat needs wants more money under, under their, under their, um, under their pin, et cetera. So the only way to get that now is to squeeze the bar rag harder. And so, uh, having fair politics, like there's no way that, uh, the Democrats could, could benefit from that. They could in the eighties. They, I mean, I'm not saying they were fair in the eighties, but, uh, you know, there were, there was like, uh, we were actually trying to convince people to, uh, come under our trade networks, et cetera. And that's all gone. Now, the only way for the Democrats to get a nickel is to steal it from, uh, we'll say like people like the white working class, et cetera. Well, I mean, you could always, you know, get a bank in the Caribbean, like where somebody's nephew of a banker has started some crazy crypto fund and then they can funnel $50 million through Ukraine to the Democratic Party. That could work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's I that, forget what that bank was called. SB, SBF, whatever. Oh, that's yeah. A, uh, Sam Bankman Freed's. Yeah. That uh, that's a great example of like, because a lot of people don't really understand how like the war grift works. The war grift is like this. So. The end goal is our money. Three guys in this in this in this uh, in this chat here have uh, paid an s load of taxes over life. They want our money, but they only but in don't but they can't just take our money. What they can do is they have to kind of wash it. So they have to take our money, they spend it over there, and then it can be bundled up by people like this back into their pockets because we have all these uh, corruption laws and stuff that means they can't just directly take their money they gotta they gotta send it through the pipes mm -hmm. yeah and they can also you know through low interest rates and central banks covered by a pandemic down to zero percent interest they can use that as well you know they did that through like you know not getting well yes getting literally more dollars but also like by uh diluting the currency um and making their own share worth more by comparison um you know inflation being the hidden tax and they've used it effectively. Absolutely. But, okay. So, what do you what do you think that is does? So, a lot of different fields have like uh, you know sort of central. I like you know like the way we think about like the way I think about politics is like through the patronage, and that 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 can like that sort of central idea can sort of help me in certain questions and 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 in others. Does the field of anthropology give you certain weapons that? can help someone uh, think clearly about a certain situation. So, um, okay, so there's there's actually one that I often reference, which isn't from anthropology, it's from political science, but it's, uh, it's the idea of constructivism. Um, and constructivism is like that, uh, these, these social constructs, which is a concept from anth anthropology, a social construction is, is anything that, 
is um, that requires uh, cultural construction that isn't innate. So like even something as simple as a word and its meaning is a social construction, but also like things like a bank, um, a government or social constructions. But what I would think about in in this case is a constructivist attitude is that, um, you know, things build on other things. So like the, uh, the United States is largely a European diaspora, at least originally country. And that European and English diaspora element is the bottom layer of this construction. And it also has an addition of uh, the influence of Native American cultures that influenced um, the founding fathers in early America probably more. Um, it also has more than people realize. It also has elements of uh, the geography. Um, it has elements of everything else that was added on top of it as it goes on. But those past, those, those past elements, it's constructivist in the sense that it's everything is built on those past elements. So at a certain point, the bureaucracy gets bloated, right? So, and there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Um, and like, you can add in something like uh, the tax laws that we have that grow larger and larger with the tax code. You can talk about something like uh, just the federal laws in general that grow larger and larger, and then they grow larger and then they get ingrained in the culture and then they're very hard to get rid of. Construction is a lot easier than deconstruction in these cases because once there are individuals who are part of these organizations in the same way that individuals are parts of things like DEI, DEI and um, ESG and then they or like the the people that work that make hundreds of thousands of dollars fixing the homeless problem that gets worse every year in California – you know, they're, they then promote their own ideology because they're individuals and it benefits them that the field that they're in becomes more prominent in the same way that, you know, um, going away from the constructivist thing, there's also the social constructions of different elements of, uh, the government. So in, if you look at the U S government and from an anthropological perspective, you break down the separate elements of it into different social constructions that are made up um, of individuals who individually have their own traits, but also as a whole, there's something about them that is similar. For example, in the executive branch of the U.S. government for the past 50 years, every single cabinet of every single one of our presidents since uh, Carter has had more than 50% of its members being from Ivy League plus schools. This is like Harvard, Cornell, Yale, as well as schools like MIT. Um, except for H.W. Bush, who was like 46%. So you have something like that, the executive branch, and then you have the executive branch as one element, you have the CIA as one element, the FBI, you have central banks, you have all these different elements of a government, as well as like state governments. We have a system of federalism, so there's state governments, local governments, and all of these different social constructions have individuals in them who are vying for power themselves. They're also vying for power of their organization. And those different elements are in constant struggle with each other. You might call this the the checks and balances of our government, and, and that's what it is. But at the same time, you can recognize over time as different ones be, become powerful. Um, like early 20th century, which you might call democratic fascism, with people like Wilson and FDR um, being praised by Mussolini and having large executive privileges. Those go away. They didn't exist beforehand. They go away. They've been back for the last 20 years. You look at the weaponization of law of the past 70 years of the judicial branch, um, there's this new thing called legislating through um, judiciary practice. This is where judges are essentially creating new laws, which was not a thing prior to that. Um, you can look at the federal government um, after the Civil War. 
getting a lot more powerful than the state governments before. Obviously, we have states in these countries because those states were supposed to be much more independent than they are. State means country. It doesn't mean a part of a country. That's why they're called states, because that's what they were. Um, but now the federal government's more powerful. So I just said a lot. I probably answered more than your question, but I hope I answered your question. No, you, you absolutely did. And you... <laughs> I, I, I promised myself I won't I won't complain about the the Civil War reconstruction again. But you you nailed it you nailed it with that last part. You know, everything eventually, however power is organized, this is going to has like it's um, you know how in in uh, astronomy or whatever they they put their space telescopes and they say there's there are planets at the star that's seventy million light years away, and we can tell because of the the way that it, the, the gravity, well, the, of the stars perturbed, whatever. Well, it, you know, power is has its own gravity on everything, on culture, on people. The great example we had a horrible, horrible mass, horrible mass shooting in a school mm-hmm. last week, and it was by a transsexual person. And and this like this is a, a debate that's held the attention of our country for for like two or three years now, and this is something that. Like you said before, five years ago, very it, five years ago it was talked about. Ten years ago, all these ideas seemed insane. But as soon as powerful people they began obsessing about it, when there was a moment where you could accrue political or personal power, you could accrue material uh, wealth from from joining this fight. Every everything just began coalescing around it. There was nothing that you could do to stop this. Mm-hmm. Does anthropology weigh into these kind of considerations at all? I mean, anthropology deals with culture, and and government construction is culture. Because uh, yes. let me let me just quickly. I'm going to read um, some very simple definitions of culture from anthropology. So this one's from the National Park Service: a system of behaviors, including economic, religious, and social beliefs, <laughs> values, ideologies, and social arrangements. Um, so that's a very simple definition of what culture is, and. You know, cultures tend to like, they tend to take on a mind of their own. And like, there's no single person, like the president of the United States is like, people say, some people think they're in charge of the U.S., but like really, they might be the most powerful person in the U.S., but that doesn't mean they don't have like 2% of the power at most. You know, it's like, it's made up of more people than that. These things like, they get created in the way that they're going to be, and then they just, they just go. You know, they're just they're just there. Um, and anthropology deals with like the culture of of people and how they interact with these social constructions. So anthropology has a lot to say about human nature and how humans act when they're when when they are in groups like this. Um, but I don't know about directly in the case of governments. Uh, there probably is something about governments, but a large like most of the anthropology that I've done would, would study more, uh, more primitive. That's, yes. that's not the term that they would use, but, but like, you know, I, I could speak more on, um, you know, hunter gatherer societies or like chiefdoms, things like that. Pastoralists. Well, that's a great, that's a great point. Uh, a great answer because yeah, if you were talking about uh, pretty much any group of people before, let's say the, the middle of the 20th century, mm-hmm. this wouldn't really factor into the, 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 the government of their of their state or you know tribes or whatever, they had a lot of they obviously had a lot of power like the power of life and death over you, but they might not affect your day to day life. Mm-hmm. Like you know even uh, I guess 
like Bronze Age people who lived in the palace economy where like every all the economic activity around them went literally went through the king. Still, the king probably wasn't didn't care what you thought. As long as you burnt your sacrifices to the local gods or whatever, you were you were fine. But we might maybe we live in a unique time where the people in power are intensely interested in what in, in what you think and how you behave. And the technology allows them to, to be involved in your life in a way they couldn't before. I, I, it, it makes me wonder if this is going to permanently blur the line between political ideas and, and cultural ideas, anthropology, whatever. How, how can you separate the two if you're talking if, if you were if you were studying 21st century Americans, you know, would would you have to if you're writing a paper about it, would you have to you would have to write about like the Civil Rights Act and the the executive branch and and, and if Supreme Court, right? Yeah. By the way, I mean, it gave me a thought. Um, there was a the Civil War before the Civil War. There was uh, a particular anecdote where there were some Yankees talking in in Congress about <laughs> whether or not they are are some high, some high position of power, whether or not they should um, like attack the South. Or I think in this case was like go deliver like a a strongly worded message, uh, and like the guy and, and the the one guy was like yeah we should go do it and the other guy was like that's like a that's like a week away in a in a in a by carriage like I don't really care that all that much <laughs> <laughs> like that's a that's like a a lot of calories for me to like actually get my ass over there to actually tell them that I don't like them. I don't like them, but that's like, and of course now I could tell, like I could tell the president of the United States, um, uh, I, could, I, could, I could call him a slur in like the next four seconds if I wanted to, which ha- I mean, yeah. that just has to turn this stuff into like, uh, t- turbo overdrive. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, so definitely like technology limits the, the interaction. So I'll, I'll give you an example in, um, in pre-Columbian Incan society, so this is what's now like uh, like the western edge of uh, South America, around where Peru is, they, you know, the king was absolute, okay? So this was the king who was in charge of a place. Um, but at this point, the king was largely a ceremonial figure. And, and this is true of a lot of different rulers, um, if you guys are familiar the emperors of both Japan and uh, China would would kind of fit into this as well for a large portion of their history. They're they're essentially spiritual leaders. But what happened in Incan society is that the king is so like he is the the top guy in charge, but his authority only rests within where he is. So basically, what happened in like this one era in Incan society is that the king has his retainers, the people that work with the king, and they would go out sometimes. But whenever they're not going out, like they would just be in where the king lives, and that would be most of the time. And all the other people from all the villages within like 15 miles, like about the amount that someone could travel in a day, they just left and they moved somewhere else because they're like, I'm not going to live near that guy because he's going to come out and just decide to kill me. But like because the king's power ended where he his presence wasn't immediate, 
and that was what their technology allowed for both their uh both their like you know they don't have cell phones obviously and but they don't they didn't at that point they didn't have the uh extensive bureaucratic network of something like the Roman Empire to dispense justice of like the em- the emperor or of the um or even of the the councils like it there was no power that extended any any farther so yeah it's it's limited by something like that but today of course you know we don't have that. We have 24-7 surveillance and things. So the tools are a lot more sophisticated. And it's not just like technology in the sense of like of cameras and, and microphones and smartphones and TVs and, and fridges that are hooked up to the Wi-Fi for some reason. Um, it's also like the technology in the form of like computer enhanced psychological knowledge that like the best psychologists in the world are going to work for people to make the most money and they're, you know, essentially creating the best mind control techniques ever. And they're being sent to your cell phone. They're not hidden. They're just TikTok and Instagram and all these things. We have a phrase that we like to use. We just call that social technology. And, and mm-hmm. it, 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 it's not, it's not a meme because it's true. And you, we, you kind of mentioned this earlier. There's the aspect of like complexity in organization and a culture and a society that, it's going to dictate how what it's like to live. Like you, the ink that you know, the Incans, you can just get up and you can go down the road. You don't have to worry about this anymore. But that's not a, that. That wasn't an option if you lived in Italy in the Roman Empire, or if you mm-hmm. live in you know anywhere in the world today, because of, because of uh, complexity and organization. And we tended in the past to think about complexity and organization and state as a like just a general good. Like we want more of this. Every time you, every time you, you, you crank this dial up another notch, things get better. But I, I kind of wonder if, if everybody still is still uh, agrees with that living in 2023 because it seems to me actually turning the dial back like five five ticks would be helpful. And th- th- here, here's my question, and I don't know, maybe this is too vague or too weird. Think cultures that you've seen in the past where, like, let's say. In, you have an insane, you have an insane Incan king, or uh, the the Roman emperor who was supposedly transsexual and wanted to change a religion. There was an Egyptian pharaoh we've talked about before who wanted to to, to switch the the uh, old empire to like a, some kind of weird monotheistic religion, worshiping one of the gods. Hmm. And these people were pretty Which would much be a path to absolutism for the pharaoh because a society that worships one god is more likely to follow an absolutist ruler. Yeah, I believe he renamed himself after that after that god too. So this I mean obviously especially with absolute rulers this happened a lot in the past. Somebody's like I'm just going to reorganize everything around a cult that's centered on me. Is, is this a, a, perhaps a, a helpful idea for people like us who live in a time where our elites are clearly insane and trying to push insane ideas on us culturally? Let me bridge that. Let me bridge that first. So, um, so something like uh, we, you know, we talked to Curtis Jarvin a couple times, and uh, something like I agree with him on is like the idea of monarchy. Now, but I came at that from a different angle, which my angle comes from the patronage stuff, and like the fun, like the most fundamental, like the only reason, like the whole patronage theory, like makes any sense at all is it relies on the idea that no one rules alone. Like absolutely no, there's no, like, and and I still use the word absolute ruler. So you could say that for someone like and most more recent, like Hitler, Stalin, Mugabe, these people like that. But all these people, if you zoom in close, you, you see that like, or Louis the 14th or anyone you, any single one, any single quote unquote absolute ruler you could ever look at 
I think that this is something that perhaps the patron stuff and then your anthropology anthropological background would agree on. They're always there's so many there's so many backs to be scratched. I mean, the funny thing is like like Hitler is Hitler was like trying to he had all these weird alliances between the generals and this guy's a Bavarian. That guy's they were like every single ruler. It's always been like that. But I think I, I, I think I guess the anthropology thing would more go more broadly to just accepting that there is something like a, a oligarchy situation. Yes. So I would say generally yes, and I'm, I have two examples for this that I, that I'm going to use, and one of them is one of the most common uh, anthropological terms that you would find. So uh, most first year anthropology students will be familiar with this thing called it's this old documentary called Onga's Big Mocha. And it's this guy in Papua New Guinea, and he is a hunter-gatherer, pastoralist. They do a little gathering, hunting. They're, excuse me. They also have a lot of pig farming. Um, and pigs are a big deal in Papua New Guinea. They're a sign of wealth. And, um, and a lot of uh, more traditional, and these, these will be like, uh, like hunter-gatherers, chiefdom-level societies, Ones that I could point to would be like um, the societies of the Pacific Northwest, uh, Southwest Canada, as well as uh, Washington and Oregon, um, and then uh, up up there in Snow Mexico, uh, the freaking the one in Vancouver, you know, British Columbia. They have like big men. Okay, so Onga's big mocha. Onga is a big man, and what a big man is is a uh, he's somebody who rules. And his status as a big man comes from his ability to give away material goods. And he gives away material goods in the form of pigs because that's what he has. And um, that's a symbol of wealth in this society. So what happens is Onga is, uh, is a big, big man. And what he has under him is lesser big men. And these are other big men. And they have mochas. A mocha is like a powwow. It's a it's a feast. It's a redistribution event where um, what happens is these lesser uh, these lesser big men that that are they throw parties for for Onga. They throw mochas and they distribute goods both to other people and to Onga. And then after a while, Onga gets more and more pigs. And then he throws the biggest mocha that anyone could think of. This massive party, massive powwow redistributes, has a big feast. And that party that mocha represents his authority and and his status as this big big man who has all of these other lesser big men under him. So these lesser big men also get their authority in two ways. One by having the mocha themselves, but also by being legitimized by Onga who is this big big man. Okay, so they are legitimized and at the same time they legitimize Onga. And this reminds me of feudalism, of course, in, in Europe and in other places where you have something like the, the king of France. And the king of France is at the top of this feudal system that exists there. And his vassals are going to be other greater nobles. You know, he has people like the Duke of Normandy. The Duke of Normandy is going to be given a sword by the king of France in a ceremony, in a ritual that's very public. Ritual, this is a term in anthropology. It's a very public ceremony that represents something. Okay, so the... The King of France gives a sword to the Duke of Normandy. The Duke of Normandy wears his sword. It's an expression now, but it was literal at the time. He's wearing his sword. The Duke of Normandy is legitimized by the sword that the King of of France gives him. At the same time, the Duke of Normandy, as a powerful man in his own right, is uh, legitimizing the King of France. 
in the same way, the the Duke of Brittany, the Duke of uh, Avignon, the Duke of uh, like parts of England at the time would have been vassals to the King of France. And then those dukes and counts, they have lesser nobles. They have um, that have fiefs under them. And those guys are legitimized by the Duke's power because the Duke's a big man in himself. And it's all just it's all just layers of people legitimizing each other and being legitimized. And we are Merrick. We are out of a job. I mean, you have just reached, this is like you, like the, the entire reason anybody listens to this, cause this, this patronage theory, which is exactly this with a couple things changed. I mean, like, and now it also goes into like how these relationships are maintained and stuff like that, which would probably be of no interest to someone cataloging a certain people or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. well, how can I be the mo uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the big kahuna or whatever. Uh, so that, that gets into that. But I mean, like, so in patronage, uh, the, what was the big man's name in Papua New Guinea? Onga. Okay, so he's Onga, and he's got the little Ongas that that um that he he gives them pigs, right? Um. Well, they give him pigs. They give well, him pigs. Okay. Well, and then which, he gives them back later at the big mocha. Okay, those guys in in our in our stuff. That's the essential coalition. That's the the that's the uh the people he needs to appease to scratch their back to stay in charge you know and i guess you i'm sure this would make sense to you if you go to like the roughest places in africa uh the guys you need to give pigs to are like uh the guys in charge of like the gang slash militias that have the the guns and the power and stuff like that so i mean we're on the, the same wavelength this is exactly like patronage theory Okay, yeah, because I, I should have asked, but I actually wasn't familiar with what that meant specifically. But yeah, that is it. Um, have you heard of the term the monopoly on violence? Oh, yeah. Of course, right. I thought you would have. Um, but for anybody listening, monopoly on violence is essentially like the person who's in charge of a territory or the entity that's in charge of a territory is essentially the entity that is permitted and is like legitimized. It, they're, committee, they're allowed to commit violence there. They're the ones that are allowed to commit violence. And this could be something as simple as a cop arresting you. That's violence. I mean, I, I get that people are going to, like, have a problem with that. But, like, ultimately, that's what it is. Like, there's nothing inherent. Like, God didn't come down from the heavens and, and anoint a police officer with the right to commit violence. It was social construction in the form of governments and different overlapping jurisdictions. It's the same re- reason why, you know, an ATF officer was tased in some state recently by a local police officer because the ATF agent didn't have jurisdiction. I think the be- um, I think a good example that to, to show like how tr- like uh because like in, normally it's just like uh well you just mean government sincere but a good like thing to show like how it could be transitive or something would be like uh the be- the best example is you have like early 20th century New York City where uh if you run a little shop in little Italy you have to pay protection money. And what protection money literally is I pay you, Bob, to not beat me up. In exchange, you will beat up anybody that would try also try to beat me up. And and but I can have this exchange with anybody. Somebody might come along and kill Bob, and I'll have to pay them. But somebody is the violence king yeah. that I that, that I'm gonna have to have a relationship with in this location. Yeah. Sounds like taxes to me. You call it protection money all you want, but it sounds like taxes. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, this right. is why. So that 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 Papua New Guinea was a great example. I normally explain patronage 
through mafia stuff because I mean, it, it, literally, the government is the is a mafia. It's the the same thing, and and literally, on some in some like literature, these things like maf like mafias in ethnic in ethnic enclaves are just like they're all alternative government. That's really all, all it is. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's nothing like the only difference between a mafia and a government. I mean, like there are different types of governments as well, of course, like there are different systems, but any sort of definition that you give to a government or a specific type of organized crime, whether you, you call it a mafia or a syndicate or a cartel, they're, they're all just different types of social constructions. And, and any definition that you give to them is a social construction in itself. Like, yeah, we can decide that the government of the United States is a legitimate government and the government of Afghanistan with the Taliban is not a legitimate government. But at the same time, like eventually, if they if the Taliban holds Afghanistan, eventually they're just the legitimate government. Well, here, like the, here's yeah. an old joke. I mean, you ever uh, we used to hear this a lot in the 2000s and stuff. Uh, liberals would go, did you know that that? Um, not Hamas. Who's the guys in Lebanon? Hezbollah. Did you know that Hezbollah builds hospitals and has ambulances and police officers? And they're like, they must be just the nicest guys in the world. Why would they do something like that? And it's like, because of the government. That's what they are. They're just like an illegal government compared, according to like the UN or whatever. Yeah. ISIS did the same thing. Yeah. It's, yeah, um, no one should be like the, the only reason you do that is to be the government like, uh, yes. So, I mean, you guys have heard of uh, divine right of kings, right? And the mandate of heaven in China, mm -hmm. like in a certain way, like the divine right of kings, whoever is going to lead is going to lead. But that comes out of like whoever has the will of the people will lead in the sense that whoever and that might be through coercion, but whoever is like comes out on top in whatever situation you can call it divine intervention you can call it the divine right but if you like at a at a cultural level the the people the organization the individuals that win in a civil war in any case um the american civil war is not what i'm talking about that was a rebellion it wasn't a civil war for <laughs> reasons that you guys probably know but um if you're fighting a real civil war as in you're fighting over a specific territory the the People that are going to win are going to be the people that have the will of the people. And, and this is what you saw in the Chinese Civil War when the communists went out. Um, and if you look at what the nationalists did, it's not surprising that they went out, to be honest. Obviously, the communists, once they take power, they do horrible things. But by that point, it was too late. They already they then had shifted to a form of uh, coercion and, and absolute capture of um, of all authorities in the entire country. In, in patronage theory. Uh, basically, uh, so you want to keep the little ungas happy. Now, how would like how would you lose the the uh how would you lose the uh what do you call the thing that you have in China that means you're the, the mandate of heaven? Mandate. How would you lose the mandate of heaven? Well, if you went to the little ungas and said, you know what, little ungas, I've got a great, beautiful idea. What if I just gave pigs to everybody, not just you guys, but everybody, everybody? Wouldn't that be much much happier? Little Ungas would kill Big Unga. There would be no more Big Unga. They would have a new Big Unga. And this, this is what this is why people like people you would imagine that would have absolute power. People like Hitler, Stalin, uh, Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, they're constantly like trying to keep these people happy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that like the absolutist era, and this is of course like uh, in contrast to the. Um, 
to the to the feudal era. So once we get into the the high and late Middle Ages, and then especially into the early modern era, into the 16th century, um, you know, th- there is a shift in technology in that time. But the absolutism is definitely more control within the government. But it's 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 not it it it's pitched as like control within one person. But really, it's it's more of an oligarchy with like a figurehead. None of this. So all this, like, I think this is all just like a, a Jedi mind trick. Because I mean, this messed with me with at start with. I was like. Wait a minute, but the word is absolute and stuff. But if you start thinking about real terms, like what if you owned a small business and, but you're the owner, you are the rightful owner. You, you, you own this place, lock, stock and key. And you just said, well, uh, I'm not going to pay my employees anymore. I'm just not going to give you money. I mean, basically what would happen is most of your management would ignore you. People would be like, yeah, okay, whatever, dude. Uh, like seriously if the check isn't here tomorrow like anyways it, it just like everyone is bound by construct like by constraints all around i mean the class example another class example big man dad the, the uh badass dad uh when he goes to the hotel i've used to work at a hotel uh there's no tough guy dad that would you don't give him a uh i can do the night i can do i can do the i can do this suite for 140 dollars a night He's got to go out and talk to the boss. He's got to go talk to his wife, et cetera. There's no, every single person mm-hmm. and these people, the, the owner of a business, the, the ruler of a nation or whatever is really, they're just sort of moving, moving packages here, moving packages there. They're just an instrument through which the wider mass operates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a distinction. Like the, the whole point of absolutism versus, you know, uh, feudalism, whatever is like who, uh, how much power is in the hands of the person at the top? Like the the, the king, uh, uh, you know, the Sun King and the King of England, they're technically the same thing, but they have very different experiences with power. the 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 King of England is getting bu- is getting bullied by his barons. The king, the King of France, yeah, he doesn't rule alone. He has to worry about what the Duke of Bourbon thinks about him, but he does. Have a he has far more power. Augustus has more power than you know a, a Roman consul in in sixty mm-hmm. BC. That's well, maybe sixty BC is a bad example, but before the triumvirate, this is there. There is a distinction there, yeah. But nobody rules alone. However, I think people tend to lump everything from, I guess, before the Renaissance into like, oh well, there must have been an absolute ruler. But this is not true. This is a, a thing that waxes and wanes, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's also one thing that we haven't discussed yet, but like we've been talking about political power in, in the form of like feudal systems and then absolutist kings, but there's also the element of religious power. Um, yes. Like the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor um, I don't remember which one, one of the earlier ones, like he, he tried to test his authority on the Pope, who, by the way... <laughs> The reason he's the Holy Roman Empire is be- emperor is because the Pope was like, you're the Holy Roman Emperor. And then the emperor was like, okay, so now I made the Pope look good because he was able to crown me the emperor, but also I made myself look good because the Pope crowned me. It's another one of those patronage things. But like the Pope was like, nah, you're not cool. You're going to be excommunicated. And then he stood outside for three days. The Pope was snowy. like, see what fuck, see what happens. Um, but after... In the era of absolutism um, that comes out after the uh, after the the 15th century, it's it's because the Catholic Church's power has de- decreased a lot. For you know, 800 years, it was the most powerful entity in Europe that superseded um, these these state authorities, feudal authorities. Whereas, like after that, then there's Protestants. So then there's another option. You know, being excommunicated isn't that big of a deal 
if you can join the Lutherans and you can join the Protestant League. It's a much bigger deal if everyone's a Catholic and if you decide that you're going to get uppity with the Pope, they're going to come for you, which is yeah. what they would do. If, you if know, Mar- that was the real authority at that point. If you're Martin Luther and you'd like to marry the most beautiful nun uh, in the nunnery, real bad idea when there's no <laughs> there's nowhere else to go. Really, really bad idea. Ah, you can get away with it later. Uh, by the way, I mean you're just hitting hitting all the marks. We've never we've never had a conversation. The big patronage event, like the thing that sort of lays out the patronage from uh, from like uh, 1100 to whatever you just said, 1500, 1600s, is the Concord out of Worms. Uh, or, or was it Verms? You have to say it's it's Veems or something. I don't know. I, well, I have no idea. We're American. We don't have to pronounce yeah, things correctly. Uh, screw that. We're yeah. The, so the the conquered out of Worms basically, and a lot of people. Uh, the guy who I think is the smartest political guy in the world says this is the reason why the West was so successful is that basically the uh, bishops and abbots were chosen by the clergy, but the emperor was authorized to decide contested elections and vice versa. The church and the secular power had to, they could both be a pain in each other's ass. And it, I mean, Europe did pretty good over the next thousand years. I don't know. Mm, yeah. uh, the Holy Roman Empire didn't. I, I, I don't know. That was kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, this is all about who has the right to appoint bishops the king or the church itself correct that was what the this the, the concordat decided uh, yes right. so I, I don't know if that's the, if that's the greatest example. okay well, well here's the here's the other example so uh so remember we have we have two different people we have a secular power and we have the religious power so if you go to the papal the papal states uh if you go to the papal states well there is no secular power or the the church has the secular power. I think a lot of people would agree that in the papal states, and perhaps because of the papal states, that just made priests and, and bishops and stuff uh, kind of act just like craven politicians. They were all of a sudden killing their family members to get the king and all this kind of stuff. They were at, they were not acting like religious men at all. They immediately were like, well, I know I'm a bit, I know I'm a, in the church, but I gotta have a girlfriend. I, maybe I gotta have a couple. All this stuff immediately started happening to these guys as soon as they gave them that. And then on the flip, like, uh, if there's going to be church, well, I don't know. It, it, I, it, it's, it's backwards though, because before before this little this little political battle, the the princes were appointing the were appointing the bishops, and it was secular secular authority. It was separate from the church authority. This agreement basically let the the church become directly involved in in secular politics in the Holy Roman Empire, and it did not. It certainly did not ben- was not to their benefit. I mean, I, you could. It's you a could. very Anglo <laughs> position. <laughs> I mean, there was some power sharing. Well, anyways, we can get off that. It, it, it was an interesting arrangement because there was some power sharing, and and nobody could really push it to the limit. You could. Well, the emperor had to cut because he didn't have the, he didn't have the authority vested in himself. He was a a fi- like a figurehead leader who didn't really have he he's called he's called the holy roman emperor but he doesn't have the power of an emperor he didn't have, have the power of a king he's kind of like the like the new zealand big man that's that's what he his job he has 
He's only there as long as he can keep these people happy. And and this is part of the reason, like, actually, you, I guess you could argue that, that keeping the Roman, uh, the Holy Roman Empire fractured for a thousand years was beneficial to, like, to Western civilization because it created this weird broken pot of, of like, I know they say melting pot, this weird cauldron of ideas that would bubble out every, every, every few hundred years. And one of the ideas that popped out was Protestantism, which, you know, I, you and I are fans of. So I guess if you want to do it that way, yeah, then maybe that was the okay, but, I mean, savior of Western oh, civilization. Okay, you, you, let's say you're in a bad marriage. I mean, you're in a bad marriage. <laughs> a bad marriage. I mean, like, it, there's, it is no, don't, uh, don't try to uh, uh, here. don't try to philosophize your way out of that. You're in a bad marriage. You have an option of, but you're you know you're power sharing there. You're in the marriage. Uh, you have an option of getting a divorce. Well, here's the thing: the divorce can be worse. It can be worse than the bad marriage. I mean, in fact, uh, you know this woman might kill you, etc. And so, I mean, what you're like, what you're you're saying that, that the marriage is bad between the Rome between the Holy Roman Empire the, between the emperor and the papacy. Yeah, maybe. Could be worse. Could be worse if you go tell the Pope, like, well, actually, we're just not going to screw you guys. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like being married to a redhead is what you're saying. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I've got a question. Uh, so what do you think is a primary motivation for people going into anthropology? And I don't mean to cast aspersions. I just mean, like, you know, generally, like, you can take, like, um, oh, computer science. Well, that guy wants to get rich. Or... Um, uh, philosophy, you know, this guy's up in his head and all this kind of stuff. What, like, what interested you? What interested you in anthropology? Um, you know, I mean, I love interdisciplinary social studies. Like, I love economics. I love history. I love economic history. I love, um, I love anthropology. I mean, those are my favorites. I also, you know, a little bit of psychology, a little bit of sociology, all those things. Um, but anthropology to me was the most interesting one. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up, um, I moved around the U.S. quite a lot. So uh, I was born in Connecticut, but uh, my first memory, uh, I was two years old, we moved to North Carolina. So I, my first few years were in North Carolina. And then we moved to Minnesota. Um, I spent like a couple years in Indonesia after that, like the country. Um, and so we were in Asia for a couple years, and then we moved back to Connecticut. Is that Suharto? Yeah, Suharto. Yeah, 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 good. Yeah, the uh, was he the? I think he was the communist dictator. Or was yeah, he? well, that's you know you brought the big man when you, when you do the patron stuff. You learn you become like a scholar, a big man, and he, he's just he's one of the big man. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, he was something. I think he was the one that kind of did an ethnic cleansing on the Chinese, which and his, was a uh, and his you know, GF had like the world's largest purse collection. I think. Really? Is it? <laughs> or, or maybe that was, that, Mar- that was the Yugoslavian. No, it was the Yugoslavian premier's wife who had the largest shoe collection, right? That, may, that makes sense. But it sorry. It was Imelda Marcus, it, uh, wasn't it, that, that had the. Where, where was Philippi- she? Wasn't she Philippines? Philippi- okay, Philippines. Okay. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, yeah. No, that was Philippines. Yeah. Okay. So you're. All right. You, I was already interrupt. You're in the Philippines. What next? Oh, Indonesia. Um, oh, I'm in Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia. Indonesia. After that, 12 years old, moved back to Connecticut, stayed there until I was 18, went back to North Carolina with the Marine Corps. And then, um, and then you know, deployed with the Marine Corps, went out to the Middle East and stuff. So, like, I love other cultures, um, always loved other cultures. One of the defining questions for me, um, something that I covered in one of my podcast episodes, something that's, like, been 
a uh, probably actually what did lead me to, to anthropology. A doll. Um, a dollar says you speak Farsi. No, no, <laughs> really. No. English and, and Spanish. I speak. I speak. They didn't. Um, yeah. They didn't try to get you to do that in the core. No, I was a fucking. Excuse me. Sorry, you guys. Do you guys swear on your podcast? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I was. Um, no, I was. Uh, uh, I signed up on an engineer contract. I was an HVAC technician in the Marine Corps. I swear to God. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I figure. I if he. My my bet there was okay. You got some college. You got some Marine Corps. No, I joined the Marine Corps first before college. Okay. Well, the other way around is you got some college, you got some Marine Corps around the world or whatever. That's this guy's going to be. Uh, anyways, I the last time I did that, I won the dollar. So, anyways. <laughs> no, I I did know. I knew one Farsi uh, translator. I did, um, and he was cool. He's a cool guy. Uh, and, Ramirez. And I don't think we've we've like. I think that that's for like. There's nobody. We people in Afghanistan and stuff don't speak Farsi, do they, Merrick? Uh, yes, yeah, some of them do. Yeah, there's oh, okay. uh, there's multiple ethnic groups in Afghanistan, um, and some of them speak Farsi, some of them speak uh, Urdu. Um, but I think I knew a Farsi. I, I knew a Farsi guy. But yeah, and I think they speak it mainly in Iran as well. Um, but yeah, Afghanistan is is very connected to Iran culturally. At least parts of it are. Um, I think uh, if you ask certain Afghans, they'll they'll say yes more than like Persians from Iran will, but like, it's one of those situations. It's like a Kosovo, Albania situation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, isn't that why places like, Af- like Afghanistan and well, Indonesia for that matter. And mm-hmm. well, hell New Guinea, the first uh, mm-hmm. for big man, these are places that are like a dream for anthropologists because they're either a crossroads of like b- b- a billion different people squashed together like Afghanistan or in Indonesia and especially New Guinea you have these people yeah. who are separated by geographic barriers and they just develop differently so you can just go there and say hey I'm going to go check out these guys and I'm going to go over the mountain you know 50 miles as the crow flies and here are people who've never heard of these other guys over here and they do everything differently yeah so at Papua New Guinea because of the diversity that exists on that island because of the geographical isolation and the cultural isolation as a result Papua New Guinea is a favorite for anthropologists as well as like other types of social scientists. Indonesia is, is not as much because it is a Muslim country. So there was a a lot of cultural assimilation, both uh, through Islam and then through a political organization that kind of resulted from Islam. And then, you know, language in, in anthropology, one of the most basic things they'll tell you and remember this is that language is the most important thing to culture. Like if, if a culture loses their language, it's over most of the time. Um, that's the thing. And that's kind of what's happened in Indonesia. There, there are individual dialects of the different islands because it's a very diverse uh, place. But, you know, Islam came first and Islam is a cultural assimilation type of thing. And then later on, the Indonesian language, which is very similar to Malaysian, um, they uh, it, it kind of, you know, it did in a lot of the other places. Um, places like Bali, which is a Hindu play, a Hindu island, um, have their own. They they still are very different. But um, I'm sorry, Bog, you asked a question before. Oh, by the way, real quickly, um, the HVAC HVAC guy in the green zone that is one of the the ultimate. Uh, that is one of the the king good old boy jobs. Like uh, <laughs> if you live in the deep Shot south, excellence. if you live in the deep south, there's some guy that lives down your road that. Uh, He's he's got a big old boat. He's got a Cadillac or somewhere. I'm not saying you made a million dollars, but that's a, that's one of those ways to uh, if you live in the sticks, like the guys uh, who do well. Ah, oh, he went and did HVAC HVAC in the green zone over there. Whatever. Anyways, that is a, a classic good old boy job. Yeah, no, it, it it is. I know, and I considered staying with it, but uh, you know, I'd rather talk about this stuff. 
Um, yeah, it's a good job. But uh, did you did, did you ask me a question before? I think it was a good question. We started talking about Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea is like perfect for our anthropologists go there all the time. Oh yeah, what well, well, why uh, why did you want to go into it? Oh yeah, I mean, oh gosh, right. Okay, so you know why human beings have different opinions, different ways of life is always was always a question for me. But the question, and this was a question that I asked that got me in trouble eventually, um, like in college, um, and I'll explain why in a second. I'm sure you guys will love it. Um, but when I was like 10 or 11, my dad brings me to Cambodia and like Cambodia is like Thailand's Mexico. And it's like, there's not a lot of regulations in this place. So we went to a, um, we went to like, there's this place called the killing fields. And then there's a, uh, there's a museum that used to be a concentration camp before that it was a school. Um, and by concentration camp, I mean like death camp. Um, and like in Cambodia, there was like three or four years where these people came took over the Khmer Rouge, this guy Pol Pot, who was like a communist, like anarcho-primitivist guy. And he decided that... Ex, ex classics professor, by the way. Was he really? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what Pol Pot understood was the pervasiveness of culture. And this is something that Maoists understand as well. Um, you know, and this is an extreme case where... They decide they need to kill all of the people who had the old power so that new power can come in. In But they took it very far in Cambodia, and they started killing everybody. They killed a third of the population. I'm sure you guys know about this, but for your listeners. Um, so they killed a third of the population in Cambodia in a few years. And I'm like 11 years old. My dad and my mom, they're like, ah, let's go on vacation, and we can never go anywhere cool like Disney World. And you're like, he's working in Indonesia. Um, and he's like, let's fly to Cambodia because like the airfare is super cheap there. And my dad was making more money living in Indonesia than he ever did any other place we lived. So we like went on this trip to Cambodia and it's really cheap there, but we, I'm 11, we go to the killing fields and there's this place where for whatever reason they made a pyramid of skulls and they kept it and there's a pyramid of skulls and there's walls lined with skulls. And our guide showing us around the killing fields is just like a guy that survived the genocide. This is like 2006. So like he was like a teenager during the genocide and like he's not over it. I don't know why you would be over it, but like we're, we're doing this. He does this every day. He's a guide for this every day. He's like getting emotional and I'm like terrified. I'm like 11 years old. I'm looking at piles of skulls. I'm like, what the heck is going on? He brings us outside. We're walking around. There's like some police tape around some trees and he points like the police tape is here he's like the caution tape don't look there that's a that's a bone and what it is is the soldiers the whatever they call them the Khmer Rouge they'd been killing babies they had smashed a baby against a tree and the bone was just laying there and since it's Cambodia they just put some sagging police caution tape around it um and then we go to the um and then we go to the the uh the school the concentration camp um and like it's kind of the same thing it's like we go through this place but it's like it's not like it would be in america where they would like have things behind glass and you couldn't go in rooms like you could go wherever you wanted and there was like blood on the wall from where they had been beating people and the blood had been on the wall and like i guess he was like they tried to clean it off he told us they tried to clean it off but they couldn't i'm like damn dude like get some sandpaper and paint over it what are you talking about but no the the blood's just there it's like 
because it's it's not the same regulations as here. And I'm like, I'm terrified. I'm like, I'm I'm 11. I'm completely traumatized. Like legitimately, I realized later that I was absolutely traumatized by this event, completely stuck in my memory. And the question of like, why didn't the U.S. do anything about this? Like, why did the United States, which at the time I thought was just this beacon of hope and for the whole <laughs> world, you know, what an idiot, right? Um, like the United States that wants to represent democracy and freedom and, and goodness in people across the world. Why didn't the U.S. care about this happening? Why didn't they stop it? And then like, so the question of like, why does the United States care about what happens in um in Iraq or in now Syria, Libya, why do they suddenly care about that when there's all these other atrocities happening? And that led me down the path of, of what eventually led me to anthropology. Um, but you know, the question of that I asked in college that I would bring up, cause this is something I had brought up in high school. I brought it up in middle school because it's something that had always been on my mind, but I brought it up to a Zionist professor who was my advisor. I was like, look, why do, why do we care so much about the Holocaust? Why do we talk about the Holocaust? And why do we talk about Holocaust and genocide studies when there are all these other genocides, like genocides of Native Americans, genocides in Cambodia? What's <laughs> different about the Holocaust? And like he gave me answers and I responded to his answers. And he I mean, he was a legit Zionist, like Israeli flag, Jewish guy. And like I legitimately it's not that I don't care about the Holocaust. I'm not even denying the Holocaust or anything. It's just like the Holocaust was bad, but other like Rwanda was very bad as well. Right. Cambodia was very bad as well. And the question of like, what is the cultural reasoning? What is the political reasoning? What is the geopolitical advantage? What is the the difference? Like, and then I later I learn like I start learning about World War II, and I'm like, wait a minute, the Soviets invaded Poland too, but we fought on their side. <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, what is what is happening? And then basically, eventually, it 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 led me down the path to understand that like all of these social constructions, universities, you know, they're they're they. They have people from the same places. Elite professors are members of the elite. They they walk in circles with elite scientists, with elite government officials, with central bankers, things like this. And they they have their own ideology. And the the information that is shown to us, the information that is created by universities um, through funding of professors who will study the things that there is funding for, like the information that we have, which is then that information is the only information that is considered available that to use that's considered a good enough source to be used in the public sphere because the Carnegie Foundation and the General Education Board from from Carnegie and from Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller Sr. created public education to to serve like their own capitalist interests. Like, okay, you guys know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, but I, I, I I'm, sorry. I'm dying of curiosity. What when when you asked him that question, like you know, why are we, why is there so much focus on this? Was his answer? I mean, objective is the wrong word, but do you think he gave you the, the like an honest answer, or was the answer that he gave you, cope? <laughs> the answer that he gave me was um, that there are close cultural ties between uh and and like there's a large population of jewish people in the united yeah. states and my response to him is like yeah but there's also a lot of native americans in america and we don't talk about the native american genocide as much and um his resp and then my response was maybe it's because there's a higher percentage of jewish people in positions of power whereas that's not true for native americans um 
and I said that in class, and I also said, you know, sometimes I would play into the to the rhetoric of these people. So I, in class, I said, you know, maybe they cared because it was white people that were being killed in the in the Holocaust. And I wasn't just talking about Jews. I was also talking about, you know, gay people and and, uh, and Poles, uh, Roma yeah. and Poles, Slavs. Yeah. So it's like more than that. I was like, maybe they care because it was white people. And then at that point, everyone else in the class is agreeing with me. One of the black kids in the class in the background is like starts bringing up slavery. And I knew that I got the professor. The professor didn't say anything. <coughs> but um, after that, because I was like, yeah, you're not going to say anything to the black guy. I know that. Um, this th that <laughs> tension, that tension has been around uh, these people for a while. It made me think of. Um, there's a hilarious. I don't know if it's hilarious. Um, have you heard about this movie? It came out mm, last year called Sisu. What? Sisu. No. Okay. It was an animated movie that had Sisu as a character that was a dragon. Okay, so th this is hilarious. Um, <clears throat> uh. 2022 is a is uh 2022 Finnish American historical action film set in Finnish Lapland during World War II. The film follows a gold prospector who attempts to secure his gold from a Nazi death squad led by a brutal SS officer. Uh, basically, it, this movie is talks about the Winter War where the Finland the Finnish people defended themselves from the SS. The Nazi SS. <laughs> In the movie, there's no like. From what I understand, there's no Russians or anything. The Winter War is just Finland against against the, uh, Germany, which is genius and hilarious. And this Come this on, is a, this is a major major motion picture. I mean, it's it's not American, but uh, Sony Sony Lionsgate, all the film festivals, huge reviews. Everybody loves. It. They said this is great. This is awesome to hear about the Finnish struggle against the Nazis. <laughs> that, that's, that, hey, look! You got it. People talk about Finland, you know, make fun of them online and the Finnish people, but they they got like the ultimate. They pulled off the ultimate Chad move. They joined the Axis in in the 1940s, and nobody cared. Like, oh, you know, well, sorry, we're, we're co belligerents. We're not part. We're not actually part of the deal. You know, we're we're, fi we're fighting against the same people, but. You know, we have nothing to do with them. That that that's impressive. That's the only like, isn't that the only oh, yeah, by the in way, my country in the, it, it, that didn't end up getting completely dismantled after after nineteen forty five? I think yeah. geography plays a role in it, though. You know, yeah, they're over there. They're you know, if people don't know, I mean, the joke there is that Finland was on on the Nazi side of World War Two. It's a ridiculous idea. They, uh, they fought the Soviets, not yeah. the Nazis. Which, They're at least nominally on the nominally on the Nazi side. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Um. Yeah. That's all. That's all. Uh. That's uh. Hilarious. Now, I don't wonder if you have any opinion on this. If you've ever, you know, the war nerd. Um. What's his What's his real name? He goes by Gary Brecher, but it's actually John Dolan. Okay. The writer John Dolan. He's like a rapper. They, you know, the rappers always make like ten names for themselves because. <laughs> It's, it's it's easy to rap if you make up like oh I need another name that's got these syllables or anyways um, he does just endless bitching and belly aching about the United States had this thing called the human tr now maybe that's justified I don't know but he he brings up there's this thing called the United States had the human terrain system in the Iraq War and the human terrain system was basically the army was like 
if we're gonna like if we're gonna actually and what we've talked about before in this episode if you want to like beat an insurgency like uh very like very few people have done that and you have to make the people like you to do that and so the army was like we have to do that we should just bring in some uh anthropologists to help us understand the people and the war nerd basically i mean in my opinion he this is like a, a class betrayal for uh, an academic to work for the army in this capacity. I mean, that that's what I think about. I mean, so there's a, here's a, a quote, not from him, but from one of these, like every unit of every anthropology department in America produces a, a stud, a document on it. And here's what he says. Um, here's uh, Richard Gonzalez, associate professor of anthropology at San Jose state university. Uh, the Pentagon seems to have decided that anthropology is, to the war on terror, what physics was to the cold war. Uh, he, he argued that this violates the code of ethics, uh, that anthropologists have a code of ethics similar to the Hippocratic oath, asking anthropologists to gather intelligence that may lead to someone's death or imprisonment in war is like acts is like asking an army doctor to kill a wounded insurgent. That's ridiculous, man. I mean, that that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, yeah, this is this is why I'm going to have the largest anthropology show in the world like at by the end of this year because everything they produce is nonsense. Every other anthropology show is just like some academic spewing like blue hair ridiculous crap. It's not like there's nobody doing what I'm, I mean, they are doing what I'm doing, but it's because it's interdisciplinary. It doesn't come from like the specific field of anthropology. Um, yeah, dude, it, it's a, it's not, it's, it had the, the field has incredible methods in it that like have a lot of good to them, but the actual execution of it is oftentimes just, just horrible, just bad, just ridiculously bad because the, the group of people that end up in anthropology, it's just, it's, it's, it's an extraordinarily, um, it's a closed-minded field. It's a very like there's there's a lot of closed-minded in the sense that at a macro level, the sum of the individuals that are in anthropology are not representative of the population in any way. They're they're disproportionately rich, white, liberal, um, and like very liberal, and produce and think very similarly to each other. And then they believe that the uh, the amount of like allowable uh, allowable disagreement is like much smaller than the one in in like the average american uh mind the the human terrain what well, i don't know what, what the official name is but the, the concept of the human terrain that we're going to send in a bunch of of, of anthropologists and we're going to help us help us win this war this is a great example of not just like not just power but other things filtering into these academic disciplines and, and I, I can tell you exactly why because i we used to listen to his podcast, but before that, you know, you know me, Bobby. I lo- I really I read the Exile, you know, with Ames, Taibbi, John Dolan. I re- I was really a big fan of their writing back in the day. John Dolan, who who wrote, who did like the expose on the human terrain system, uh, the one who created it was his ex girlfriend. So you know, yeah, the, which kind, which kind of changes the 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 on how noble you are of exposing. Yes, and, <laughs> but. Here's the to me the the interesting thing, and I didn't piece this together at the time when when this came up. So this this change, this change in doctrine happens what 2008 something like that before before Obama comes into office, but after the 2006 midterm elections when the the basically the end the 2006 was the end of the 
Bush administration functionally. You have this switch in power. So he about, the- he about knocked that mic off the table. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's it's. Oh in. no, I, I thought that was Merrick. I, I thought it was Merrick. <laughs> no, Sorry. it was me. My bad. I guess. So 2006 is, is it functionally the end of the Bush administration. You have a switch. Who's in charge of the war now? It was it was one faction within the DOD, and and now it's more leaning towards the State Department. And of course, Obama continued this trend and. This, I mean, of course they would send in an army of these people. That's their people. And, of course, in 2002 or, 2000, I guess, 2003, 2004, when, when we were in Iraq, this wouldn't have been possible because Bush and his faction was too powerful. And so, like, you have these arguments over, is, it, is this violating codes of ethics? No, that's not the problem. The problem is you're mad about your, your patrons out of power, and now somebody – and now he's uh, – the person who is in charge is, is – Giving goodies to their client instead of you. Okay, so it's, it's, it's funny how that how this but, it always boils down to that somehow. Okay, but but just tell me real quick. I mean, don't you think it like so? I welcome everyone should go to Wikipedia and look up the human terrain system. It's the most bizarre. Like, remember, like w- this is like a military operation. There's like official people and all the like codes and all this stuff. This is like ten pages of just like bitching about like this is what was done to the Black Panthers. They, like it is ridiculous to say like. Uh, that something like this should be done. And I mean, like, by the way, it's not a terrible idea to you for them to do that. Perhaps they should have done that internally, not bring in uh, blue hair professors and stuff. I mean, right, Mary? My, my opinion is this was a, a, a paper, a paper that said, you know what we need to do? We need to establish like a little, a little sociology commissar unit for the military. Nobody would have done this before the people who started the war fell out of power and their rivals took control. And but, they, it was, it was, it would be like if we, if tomorrow we took control of the Senate, and and we said like now every military unit has to have a, a Southern Baptist slash Pentecostal chaplain who 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 gets to look over the orders and make sure that oh. everything they're doing. That, that that's that that's to me functioning what this really was. And and since social social science. The professors are their clergy. That that's how it shakes out. And this has like I, I don't. We're, we're here with an anthropologist. I don't want to like to like besmirch him or the field because if we're in the 19th century, anthropologist means like I'm going to uh, to go to the South Seas Island and meet the Taipi Tipi tribe, and like three of my coolie porters were killed and eaten. But let me document everything that happened so you find out about it. When, like that, that's when, a different thing than whatever. Fucking Mitzi, whatever her her name was, is doing with her I mean, human terrain system. Yeah, but when when Cortez rolled into Mexico, I mean, people were doing stuff like this. They found allies. They made them happy. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not sure. like yeah, it's not a bad idea for them to do. It's like yes, but what you're talking about is it. It absolutely is that type of patronage thing. It's uh, it's it's ridiculous. Um, but it's always been like hearts and minds has always been a thing. The will of the people. You you need the will of the people. Um, they try to get it in Vietnam too. Yeah. And by the way, I mean like in terms of, like it's not like I, I I think I see what you're saying, Merrick. We you say like they're embarrassed of it, but like it's not like a give me job. Like these people got killed and stuff. It's not a give me job as in like a no show job, but it's a give me as in like here's an opportunity. You can go to a rock and you can become an important person. Yesterday you were nobody. Oh, okay. Yeah. T- in 2023, yeah, it would, we wouldn't, it would, they wouldn't do this anymore. That's too much work. Yeah. It would be, a, yeah, it would be a no show job for some for for a guy in a dress today. Yeah. So like, but, but, but we're 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 going back. You know, we're turning the clock back 20 years to when, you know. I'm not saying that we were like a, a, a lot more functional, but we were more functional than we are now. It's just just basically how that works. 
it's crazy, really <laughs> crazy how, how much it's changed just in that time. Well, I mean, I would, I would love to, have, well, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I would have loved to do something like that, like even six years ago. Now I, you know, I have no interest in being involved with the military at all after this crap in Ukraine, but in <laughs> yeah. Afghanistan, um, yeah, I mean, I, I lost all my faith after the Afghanistan withdrawal in, uh, in the military, the DOD, the, the U.S. government. The, the military is really in trouble, guys. It's, it's not being talked yeah. about that much, but recruiting's way down. Uh, political appointments for, for the generals are up. There's, um, you know, the... Um, sorry, my... Uh, I, Morale? No, I, I have, uh, you know, my, my, my dumbass decided to house hack and, and rent, to, uh, rent some bedrooms in my house to, uh, <laughs> to people that... One of them that has absolutely no respect and is completely entitled. I thought about bringing him on the <laughs> podcast and doing a... Uh, anthropological study. It, yeah, so seriously, like, I'm going to start doing, like, anthropological, like, ethnographies with, uh, like, interviews with people. And I've considered asking him. He's, uh, he's 23, moved in with me. I've known him for a while, but um, just the most ridiculous entitlement attitude I've ever met in my life, like for the amount of stuff that he does. So I thought about bringing him on and just being like, hey, you know what? Let's, let's break down your mindset here. Like, I just... I just want to know, like, <laughs> I just Get want out. to know where the... How the, much did your parents beat you? Because how much ever it was, it wasn't enough. Yeah, it, have needs a, to, it needs to be a little bit more. Have a, a Pop-Tart in a loose site display in the uh, the Smithsonian. I'm going to do it. I need to go buck wild. Cause you, you, when you were, were talking to us before you went on, you, you said something that really piqued my interest. And I know this is mm. a dangerous subject. And I don't want to get anybody in trouble, oh, especially us with Patreon, but... <laughs> Here's here's the, and I'm gonna use the man's words. The difference is, between is this, uh, this going to be Jews or transgender? <laughs> the difference between immutable characteristics and cultural ones. Oh God! So this used talking to about be bell curves, boys. Let's go. <laughs> well, when I'm 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 older than you, uh, mm -hmm. a little bit older than you. When we were when our, the 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 education that I got in school, uh, grade school to high school was. Basically, that the immutable characteristics—you're not really allowed to think about them. Everybody, everybody, everybody is is equal. Blah blah blah. Uh, so, de, de, you know, I guess I'll use the phrase again. De facto, that's still supposedly what everybody in this field is supposed to believe. Like, this mm -hmm. is part of their progressive religion. But yeah. as we said. They don't. That doesn't really match the rhetoric, which is that like there are certain people who are just like genetically evil, who who are who are bad, and there are immutable characteristics, but only for people we don't like. Did mm -hmm. did you see this shift? Like a lot of people will say, like 2013, 2014 was the moment that there was this this overt turn. Did you see any changes? We'll say in between the time that you started studying this and and now that you could say yes, this is when this happened. This is when they started getting back into their own version of race science. Yeah, I mean, so I graduated high school in 2013, and then I started college in 2017. So ah. it's um by the time I started college, I think this this transformation had happened, but it definitely did happen like kind of in that time like it was kind of starting in the early 2010s um and i'm gonna point to something that you guys might be aware of um but around 2011 2012 um there was a stark increase in the discussion of and and this this has been shown in data for mainstream newspapers um and other publications new york times washington post the big ones um in around 2012 that um 
the the discussion of race, racism, sexism, gender, it shot up substantially and it mm-hmm. kept going up. Um, and what this really has to do with like things like critical race theory, which people like to pretend somehow doesn't exist, but it totally does. Um, like self-named critical race theory is absolutely a thing. Um, started in the 80s, but it became very popular at this time. And uh, there is a correlation. You know, I, I can't establish causation, but there is a correlation between um, this this shift towards racism, sexism, gender that starts around 2012 and also the power and then subsequent destruction through uh, Fed tampering of Occupy Wall Street. And the hypothesis is, of course, that like the the powers that be, the ruling class, the donor class, whoever you want to call them, um, they decided that the class-based stuff in the wake of the Great Recession in 2008 was becoming... Um, way too powerful and that in response uh discussion of race discussion of sexism discussion of gender has to be at the forefront and through the specific ideology of uh, critical race theory in that field um as a framework rather than just one way of thinking um it it does immutably come to to say based on our it's a very american centric uh field because it's, it decides immutably that white people, as white people, are privileged based on their whiteness. Now, there would be other layers to that that might be discussed. For example, you guys are Appalachians, right? Like, that would be brought <laughs> up as as a in, in intersectionality. That would be something that would then reduce your privilege. In practice, you know, they don't really care, and instead you're just the enemy and you're evil. Um, but, like, if, the, if critical theory was viewed from a wider lens and included more things like that, then there might be a more clear view of it. But yeah, it starts to, it's, it starts to get weird around 2012. Does, does that answer your question? I know it doesn't answer it exactly, but like, that's the closest thing I can think of. Well, I, I mean, no, but I don't think anybody has this answer. I've heard, I've asked this question to a lot of very smart people and I've gotten a lot of different, everybody seems to kind of agree that 20, around 2012, 13 to 14 is when you, is when this, you know, it came out. Whether you made a great point, this has always been lurking in in the background, mm-hmm. and and lately we've been talking a lot. In fact, Bob, <laughs> my colleague here, uh, basically accused Neil Gorsuch of <laughs> of of helping helping a, a high profile crime happen because of the the Bostock decision. You know, so the adding transsexuals to the Civil Rights Act. Like, so if you can you can go all the way back to like the 1950s and 60s if you want to say here's here's the conception of, of what we have today. But I think you're uh, there absolutely something did happen in the in the early 2010s that precipitated a a shift. I've heard people say occupy. I've heard people say it was the second Obama administration that he made personnel changes. It's funny because HTML doesn't he think that it's um he thinks uh, it's smartphones. Yeah. He, he thinks that this is a, a mechanical problem that this, the introduction of smartphones led to social media, which led to basically self-reinforcing. Not I mean, that's chambers. that's not a zero percent factor. I mean, it, no, there was, if there was no not. social media, I would not know what critical theory is. I would just be working on Camaros and stuff. <laughs> I, I, o, Obama is, I think, is a really good example because his 2008 campaign. If if someone if you told someone today like a Zoomer, yeah, there was a black guy who ran for president in two thousand eight. They would be like, oh, I bet he ran on like racism. No, he didn't. He ran on 
a lot on class issues. I saw the man. He came. He came into the valley and and, and gave a talk. And he was talking about you know the ownership society and the the financial crisis that was happening. He didn't run on you know America is racist. Not like you know his his vice president did in 2020. And Occupy Wall the Occupy Wall Street reasoning. I don't see any. I can't. I can't find any fault in it other than a, a bias I have against. Occupy Wall Street in, in, in the sense that I knew people who were involved in that and they seamlessly transitioned into being DSA race and gender maniacs. And I'm really, really I, I'm, I'm suspicious about the people, not not the general public, but the people who led it. I, I feel like maybe they were following orders rather than this is like a, 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 a something that was top down imposed upon them but anyway that's what that's way in the weeds I think what your explanation is a, is a is an excellent one I, I think that the social media does play a big factor but I think the social media at the same time amplified certain things that were being pushed by people that wanted them pushed and you know at, at a certain point probably a little bit after 2012 uh, later probably more like 2015 2016 2017. They started. There started to be selective censorship of of certain ideas over others, and that, of course, accelerated uh, in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, yeah, and well, here we are. Yeah. Well, by the way, I mean, in terms of like, uh, I'm one of these people that firmly believes. That, so, like, yeah, woke just got turned on 2014 or whatever. But like, all the pieces were there since the the 60s. Like, the classic example was disparate impact. I mean, it's so like the whole. The, I grew up listening to Republicans say like, well, we're just going to judge people on their character and the, instead of the color of their skin. And like, as long as there's no intent to be discriminative, then well, clearly it's an adjust- like, well, that no, I mean, since like 1965, uh, the law has said intent doesn't even matter. And these these <laughs> people just never brought this up. Like, wh- why? They don't, they don't know, man. I mean, the, the people in charge know, but I've talked to people who were like super. They're not they're not stupid people. They're college educated. They're nice enough people. They're, you know, M- MSNBC progressives. They, they meet. They genuinely mean well. I had a conversation not that long ago where I said basically I said freedom of association doesn't exist because it doesn't. After the Civil Rights Act, you you don't have freedom of association anymore. And the person's like, what are you talking about? And I said, you can't just tell someone they can't come into your store because you don't like them. And and they were like, what do you mean? They didn't understand. Like, they, yeah. they've seen the videos of the, the people getting sprayed with the water hose and segregation stuff, but they don't understand what this means this means like if the if the supreme court decides tomorrow that uh gamers are a protected class you're not allowed to say you, you call of duty players can't come into my cafe w- whatever that's, that's a silly example but this is how that works and they just they don't know and and i and i understand that because like i i, I didn't understand how this worked five years ago like well, he, I do now. here's what they did what they did was so i had a uh I knew a guy that was a, um, uh, a, a accountant. For, I'm in. I live in Florida, and Florida was used to be like the one of the only places that had these huge lottery, uh, huge lottery things. I've never played the lottery, but uh, you know. And so in TV shows, like a common character would be like uh, uh, idiot redneck that wins a hundred million dollars, whatever. And this guy would be the accountant for these people, and he was. And he talked about like if people find out that you have the money, uh, you're really screwed. I mean, you're you're. 
it, you really can't do that. Like what you, what you have to do is you have to uh, get an attorney and there's a name for it to go get the money for you. You never tell a soul. You play it really cool. You're not going to buy that mansion for a couple of years. You got to keep going to your work for a while. <laughs> you got to don't act like you got the money for a long time because, uh, and he gave all these reasons now that, that, that it'll, that you, you have, you can't let people know you got the money. The lives, they got, they won the lottery in 1965, but they did not quit going to work. They didn't, they, they played it cool and they did not really abuse this, this disparate impact stuff as hard as they could for a long time. And now, you know, they, they got the hundred billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that when I like, when I look at it, like I, I, I did an episode where I looked into the statistics of like the racial makeup and the economic makeup of like a school like Harvard. And like what you see when you look at it is that um, and then if you look at like, unfortunately, if you look at like SAT scores of, of admittance, there is a difference in SAT scores of admittance based on Asian, white, black, Hispanic. Like there are different scores admitted because they're admitting more people in. But once you break down like the white admittance to a place like Harvard, <laughs> you like you look at it and, and, and I'm of course, I'm going to be accused of anti-Semitism, but like a large percentage of that white population is Jewish and once you take that out of it, it's like the rest of the white people that are getting in there are absolutely rich and connected people. So it's like if you're just a normal white guy, like even a middle, upper middle class white guy, like you got you don't have as many chances as like um, as you might think you do. And if you look at it from the perspective of like it's like, oh, white people have this because this percentage of white people are CEOs. But like, how does 70% of CEOs being white helped me out. I live in the I live in rural Connecticut. I don't know anything about CEOs. Like that has nothing to do with me, right? But it's the it's the ability of them to frame the argument. They they frame everything in the terms that they want to and any deviation from that framing, if you go away from the racial framing of things and you try to go to a socioeconomic framing, then you're viewed as a race reductionist, a racist, a white supremacist, whatever. And I'm none of those things. Um, you know, I probably have more like socially, I'm very conservative, but economically, I, I wouldn't call myself a Marxist or a communist, but I definitely believe a lot in um, in the class-based, in, in a class-based society and a class-based structure. But it's not the only one that I have. You know, it's not like a framework like critical race theory, which would view everything through the lens, lens of race and anything that deviates from that framework is an attack on it. Um, and as a result, racism. I remember doing this podcast has been really helpful just for my understanding of, of events. And one of, the, one of the things I always remember is something my, my, my buddy here said. It was the turn 2020 at the height of, of, you know, there were all kinds of, there's race riots going on. There's a pandemic, all this crap. And uh, he leans into the microphone and he goes, what, what if this is all just to get Joe Biden elected president? And, and and that was the that was the most horrifying moment because like I realized you know he was right there are all these things that happen like the critical race theory and ideas about you know 
although is there is there original sin for for white people and all that. It's all crap to get people in one political party elected, and it would change tomorrow on a dime if if circumstances change. Like for example, uh, Asians are getting uninvited from the cookout, as the as as the libs like to say. Yeah. They're not they're not in the party anymore. This could join this, us, bro. Yeah, on, exactly. Over this, here. This would all go away tomorrow if it wasn't about a stupid like. The, all these things happen. You have generations of people who are going to be completely demented, either through like blood libel or you know hate, uh, hatred of of some of their fellow countrymen because of the of the stuff they were taught. And it was just to get oh, shoot. What was the guy who who's got no brain who got elected in uh, Pennsylvania? Fetterman, just to get John right. Fetterman a seat in the Senate. That is probably the yeah. darkest, scariest realization I came to. And, and if I, especially if you were trying to get involved in like philosophy or anthropology or any of these disciplines and it and, and this stuff and it leaks in and infects your discipline the thing that you like that you love mm-hmm. to, to get involved in this stupid <laughs> these stupid political beefs that would yeah. probably be even more frustrating we're gonna have yeah. to get rid of that word discipline that's kind of got uh essentialist um characteristics <laughs> <laughs> uh i mean so I had this conversation earlier today. I made this tweet and like this basically talking about the military, just the military in general. Like why are the Democrats making these changes to the, to the military? And, you know, I think the more, the more instinctual right wing thing is like, well, we want to weaken the military and they, to, uh, make it so they'll they'll lose the battles or, or they're, or they'll shoot us. That That's, that's one of the things they go, but I, you, you, yeah, you, what but, was your suggestion? But you you have to look at it from their their eyes. They're like it like a, if a mosquito is flying over the head of me and then um, uh, Sydney Sweeney right next to me. Uh, guess what? We both look just as juicy. We're we're both the most attractive. <laughs> we're both exactly as attractive. We, because that's the mosquito just needs one thing. They need blood. And a Democrat looks at the military. They look at the they look at the academy. They look at anything, and they just go, "We need them no show jobs, or we need those no work jobs. That's all we care about. We just need you've got what do you what do you got to do? Uh, oh, there's there's basic training. They can yell at you. Well, just get rid of that. I don't like just get rid of that. We just need to make it uh, what make it more people dependent on us in these kinds of jobs. This is this is that's the blood. That's their, that's their, uh, you know, uh, biting into your ankle. That's all they care about. They just need that. Yeah, they do. And they're, I mean, a lot of these federal things are just job programs for people. That's, you know, that, <laughs> that gets them in the, in the thing. That's yeah. In the, the university, people I, I mean, you, the university, a lot of like, what, this is something that came up before. There are these programs Anthropology is kind of there, but like in the cla- like the classics, where uh, the classics can be like considered like just against like just a uh, it'd be like like a Satanism class at a at a at Notre Dame. Like, well, we wouldn't want that. That's against uh, Catholicism, or whatever. But what they they they're not going to get rid of it because the thing is, uh, like there's a department with buildings and people get checks in the classics department. So what they've just filled up these classics department. I've heard about these people that go to these universities, like my department. Yeah. Well, there's, there's no one really doing anything. It's, but it, it's just, they need those checks. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. There was a, I, I went to the university of Connecticut and there was a professor 
who was there for um, who was for years collecting a like they were a senior senior professor and they were collecting an, like over two hundred and fifty thousand dollar a year salary for years and not being checked up on by anybody and it took years for them to notice that this person was not showing up to work or doing anything. I mean, it, it's if you have a public institution like that um, or with a large enough endowment and they're a nonprofit, then like these bloated bureaucracies, they just get to the point where like there are, like you said, these nothing jobs. Universities are full of nothing jobs. They're absolutely full of them. You yes, you can get like a work study through the federal government where like a lot of these work studies are you sit in an office and you might talk to somebody if someone comes in. But a lot of the times you're just there to sit there and answer questions or whatever. But no one ever asks any questions. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy. I mean, I, I got paid. I got paid a lot of money to sit and watch South Park at some of my nothing jobs in university. And I took full advantage. Really did. Hell yeah. Get that back. <laughs> Dude, I mean, it, it as as a. From a macro level, I think that they're bad, but at the same time, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna take what I can. Um, I'm gonna take my piece of it. Oh yeah, uh, I always tell people like, um, if you're applying to college, you tell them you're you're everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the rules of the game, and you you do not you doesn't make you like yes yes. Yeah, I I I recently was filling out some sort of survey, and I said that I was Asian, which doesn't really help you that much. But I'm Hungarian. My 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 grandfather was Hungarian. I'm like, well, Hungary they mm-hmm. uh, they Back came Yarcha. from the Carpathian. They came into the Carpathian Basin from the Asian steppes, so that's an Asian culture. So I'm Asian, and I think I selected Latino because I was like, I got a little bit of Italian blood in me. That's Latin. That's Latino. So I checked Latino. Um, so that you know, that's me, and I can argue that. What are you gonna say? You say I can't identify. You're gonna you're gonna attack my identity and say that I'm not truly who I say I am because that's like that's offensive. I think that you're a you're a racist. You're a sexist or, or a uh, you're transracial phobic. That's what you are. <laughs> this this also undermines their stuff. Like mm-hmm. they're this has happened in South America. Like you go to places where it's like really poor countries and there were like scholarships or money or jobs where it's like you had to be a woman. It's people like I'm eating like I'm 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 barely eating. I live in like uh, uh, Bolivia or something. Hell yeah, I'm a woman, of course. And we there was a couple stories last year in Mexico and South America where like all these things where they tried to do this was um, completely ruined because everybody signed up for it and just said they were a woman, etc. Yeah, yeah, because you just can right. Like there's no you can still have a beard because there's so okay. Um, anthropology. Uh, anthropology of gender right so anthropology cultural anthropology deals with gender so i watched the movie what is a woman of course and um like watching that documentary and seeing like what is a woman what i realized when i was watching it is that the reason that nobody could answer that question is because woman is no longer a shared cultural term that has any meaning at all and that's because if we decided what a shared definition of what a woman is, that would like if you define it, it by definition has to exclude somebody because you have to define it as less than a human, like as not less than a human, but as like more specific than a human. So you can't decide that um, that there is a shared definition in the world of what a woman is, because if you decide what a woman is, then somebody's going to be excluded and it's it's unacceptable for anybody to be excluded. And this is hyper individualism. You're like, I'm 
of course, I love individualism, but at the same time, when you have something like gender that is often the backbone of a society, like, like you know, I'm not saying that I believe in the most strict gender roles. I believe in some gender roles because they've helped cultures forever. It's like, if you see a circuit breaker, um, if you, if you, or the, the ancient one or the, the normal one is like, if you see a fence, you don't tear it down just because you don't know why it's there. Like gender roles in society, like they've always served a purpose. And when your culture decides that there's no longer a shared definition of what a woman and what a man is, they completely lose all meaning and they, they don't mean anything. And that's, there's, there's other implications for that. Um, and I don't, if you're a man and you see a light bulb this out, uh, it's your gender duty to change it. Uh, why? Because women ain't going to do it. <laughs> They're not going to do it. Regardless of whatever kind of uh, social system you put up there, they ain't going to do it. A note on exclusion, they're, they're, they're extremely happy to do that when it serves their interest. For, uh, the, the greatest example to me, and we, we haven't, we've, we're close to getting, to getting there here, but we haven't quite reached the, the in England they have this category, uh, the category called BAME, Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic. So if you think about this, what this means is you could just do like Democrat in America. When you when you say, when you no because that would include some white people. B A M E means everybody who's not white in the country, and and that is ex- exclusionary. It's non-white. It's the, the category itself is non-white, but in a, you know it's, it's a euphemized non-white. Well, well euphemized, but it, it, this carries legal weight, and you know money changes hands, and 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 laws are enforced through this category it's more than just a euphemism it's like why i bring this up is because sometimes we'll especially boomer cons and i'm sorry we we, we love them we they know they mean well but they have this thing where they think that this is a uh something foolish that college students bumbled into and they, they're just they're just making a mistake they don't understand that you know bame is a is a is exclusionary they they think they really believe in in their their language of we want everybody to be be included, and we want tolerance and stuff. But they don't. But we know they don't care about that. They are ruthless in their exclusion of, of their political enemies, and so sometimes boomer cons make this mistake where they're like, "Well, if I can," and like the Matt Walsh documentary is a perfect example because I don't think this is Matt Walsh's intent. But there were people who watched it, and I know because they told me about it in real life that like. Well, once the once the kids see this, they'll realize how foolish all this is. But that's but that's not the point of what Matt Walsh is doing. That's never going to happen. The point of what he was doing was, it's not like this, these are fringe crazy people. They are crazy, but they're not fringe. They run the country, and they can if they can obliterate the meaning of the word woman, which is like one of the aside from human being, it's hard to get more fundamental than man and woman. If they can do that. If you can do that through through the language, through cultural manipulation, you can make people behave in ways that would have thought to have been impossible ten years ago, which yeah. is exactly what's happening. Maybe that's so that's so basic it doesn't even need to be said, but I do think the point gets missed from time to time. No, I think you're totally right. And I, I think it is a major problem, and I think it's a sign of things to go. I mean it's it's one of the most fundamental and it's, it's kind of like tearing at the fabric of a society when something like that is is lost. And I'm not even like, I, I don't even have a problem with transgender people. Like, I don't even think that having transgenders would be that big of an issue if there was at least a shared definition of what it of what it meant. And if there was like a <laughs> shared, like if if somebody wanted to change from female to male, like as long as they 
I think that it would be okay for society if they just transitioned in the role of a, of a man, but like the role of a man was still defined, you know, like, I think that would be more okay than what we have now, which is anybody can be anything and you can have a beard and look (laughs) like me and then just identify as a woman. And if people believe you, then like you are a woman. That's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. It is what it is, but you know, If, if you were a transsexual in the year 1995 and you weren't like, you know, uh, being a prostitute at a truck stop or whatever, it would be horrifying for for them to to be like to for someone to say, "How do you feel about this as a transsexual person?" They didn't want you to know they were transsexual. They wanted you to think, "Oh, well, there that's a woman. That's that's a lady yeah. with lady parts who who likes Barbie dolls and 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 you know going <clears throat> to wine tasting events." They didn't want to be a, a separate category. And I don't say that because I harbor any um, affection for for the for the class of people, but that was different on an essential level than what we have today which is that they're they want it they want it they want it both ways they want to carve out this special category where they are have a, a privilege that goes beyond far beyond woman far beyond race in in perhaps all but one black like black person transgender uh, transsexual person they're probably neck and neck right now who's the more who's the more politically privileged class when it comes to the law yeah. So uh, they have they enjoy that. At the same time, they want to receive the the legacy benefits of the separation of the sexes. You want you want you're you're not a woman, but you want the perks of being a woman. But you don't any of the all, obligations. All you have to do is I mean, so uh uh get rid of postdoc. You get rid of postdoc and we're back to the old so the old situation was um first off, if you're convincing like that woman that was in the James Bond there was a woman that was James Bond film that nobody knew they had no idea they found out like 20 years later well like no like what like what's the what's the issue there you can't tell unless you're Mike Cernovich this is not a problem for greater society yeah now if you're like if you're like six eight or something like that well um I guess you're gonna have to do what would they do they would go they would either they would go live in like West Hollywood or whatever Everything's fine. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let, so, let me, yeah. You so, could, might, might want to try out for the, the Clippers or something, too, though. <laughs> <laughs> Dominate in the WNBA, honestly. You really would. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a, I've often thought about that because I'm a person who likes basketball, even though I hate the NBA for political reasons. Okay. You know, there's really not too, ostensibly – <laughs> There's nothing ostensibly to stop Juana Man from being a documentary. There, like there has to be. They must like now. A lot of things do have rules against this. Yes. The, they're just the the WNBA must have a rule because like they have to. They would. Or they'd yes. have biological males in there already. They, I'm yeah. there's, no, there's nothing stopping that those those women who go on ESPN to complain about how WNBA doesn't get enough money to 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 champion for this because for one thing, ironically enough, if you let men play in the WNBA, people would actually watch the WNBA. <laughs> <laughs> but but beyond beyond, oh, oh my god, <laughs> a rib shot for that. But beyond that, um, there's nothing that stops that crusade from happening aside from like. You know the WNBA is full of LGBT women, LGB uh, L women, and they are not going to be on board with this with this program. That's but- hilarious too. Yeah, turfs the worst, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, 
I, I love, have you guys seen what the NHL has done recently? Um, yeah. With like, there there was one Russian dude who uh, like denied wearing one of the pride jerseys. And um, now there's like a, now there's a bunch of them denying doing it. And I think that the reason is that the NHL is full of uh, like a lot of Russians, uh, Slovakians, uh, Latvians, like from like conservative European countries. And there's a larger population of them and there's enough of them that are like, nah, I'm like not down with this. Um, and that's, I think that's cool. It makes me like the NHL a little bit more. Not that I like have anything against rainbow flags or whatever, but I do have something against them being used as like a political tool like that or yeah, them I mean, forcing people to wear them. It's ridiculous. In the nineties, uh, let's say you were a huge bigot or you weren't, nobody would know you would just walk, you would go to the stadium. Um, you would play in the game. Nobody would have any idea about the thoughts in your head. You go know, 2023, hey, you put this on. Now do we have to have a conversation. Yeah. Well, it's, it's all contingent. We talked about this in the live stream the other day. Uh, I'm just like, I used to be a fan of basketball. I used to watch the NBA. You would not see the rainbow flag stuff in the NBA because young black, pe- young black people watch the NBA and they ain't on mm-hmm. board with that. So you'd see lo- tons of BLM crap and all kinds of, of racial stuff. Obviously, but you you would not see you would not see very much of this stuff at all. Of course, they shove it in the hockey, but you know that there's a reason for that. The pro, there's a lot a lot of people who watch the NHL are probably on board with on board with this policy. Not the majority, but enough. Yeah. And it's not going to piss off any of the of the uh, the people who are essential to keep the NHL in yeah. business. It would just moderately annoy me, and I'd move on. But you know, yes, I think it's because the players are white, and there's there's um there would be any con- like if if they told. If they told uh, black basketball players to put on the jersey and they said no, I mean, what is, now you're in a really weird situation. This is something that the, the Democrats tried to cover up during the uh, Proposition 8 thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Nobody wants to know that black people are super homophobic. I think they're, <laughs> like, by race, the most homophobic race in America, um, like, at a population level by statistics. I'd have to confirm that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. <laughs> yeah, the- we'll catch up one day. <laughs> let me let me well, we pump pa- those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers. <laughs> those are rookie numbers. Yeah. <laughs> well, we passed it, so I can't easily segue into it, but I'm going to anyway because we were talking about you know what you should put on your college application and one old trick that's gone that that has been around for forever and a day was just say you had you were one sixty four Cherokee because you're you're part Native American because it can be it, that can be true. Uh, it's uh, funny, I, I probably mentioned this story before, but there was a, a. Their story was that they were part Indian because they were a little bit darker than other people around them, and they did a twenty-three and me test and found out they're not part Indian; they're part something else. And so I guess oh. they're. But on the other hand, now they can put on their college application a way better, a way better political category than, than they could before. But my my point for this, if if I have one, was. You know, Native American Native Americans being saying I'm one sixty fourth part Cherokee has been a high status move for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Perhaps mid nineteenth century, late nineteenth century. Um, it was a straight up cheat code for colleges, right? But I mean, even before then, but before this stuff was 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 uh, he was descended from a from a from a Cherokee princess was not something you would necessarily be ashamed of in the 19th century. And part of that is that we, a part of our founding mythos was 
that we had this bond with the indigenous population of the United States. We didn't always get, <laughs> to say the least, we didn't always get along with them. But there was yeah. a respect that existed between the founding stock and especially the founding fathers of the United States and the people who lived here before. And that part is true. I mean, that is true. It's just there's not as much of a ethnic influence in most of the white population of the U.S. as some people would would pretend. There, there's more pretenders than not, you know. Right. Every, that's a common thing ever in the South that everybody's family says that, and I heard that about my family. I had 23 me. I there wasn't no Indian. In it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I I know that's more common in the South. Like New England, they killed most of them by the end of the 17th century, so it's less. But like I'm third generation American, so it's like it's. Oh yeah, but by by the way, do you specific? I mean the 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 mistaken thought that you're part Indian in the South yeah. is rampant. That's oh, I, oh, most yeah, yeah. rednecks. Most rednecks have that in their family. Oh yeah, yeah, great grandma, whatever. Right. Yeah, I, I I wonder now in retrospect if some if some of that in the South especially is the. Can I say somebody hiding in the woodpile? Will we get banned from Patreon if I say that? Like, mm. th th that was like, yeah, oh yeah, my my cousin, Le my cousin uh, Jay looks a little bit darker. Yeah, he's part uh, uh Wamantichi Indian. It's it's a, it's a yeah, you know princess from the from a, from a long line of, of Indian nobles. A anyway, uh, <laughs> I'll get get away from <laughs> get away from the twenty the skull measure. Well, ironically, get away from the skull measuring when we talk with the anthropologists. <laughs> now the the. Uh, you would hear in school stuff like the the U.S. Constitution was partially based on the Iroquois Confederacy and, and all these things about how there was an out, perhaps outsized influence of Native American culture on the founders of the United States. It, is there any truth to that in your opinion, or is this all PR cope that was made up after the fact? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. In fact, the, um, I'm, uh, I, I think that the impact of it has actually been um, uh, has actually been kind of suppressed a little bit. Um, I, I don't I don't actually have that one ready, but if you want me to, I can find you a couple of quotes specifically from uh, the founding fathers on that uh, topic. I could pull it up in like five seconds. Sure, go for it. And I'll just say while he's doing that, you know, this one of the things he's New England got well kind of New England guy, they would love to name their clubs after Native American tribes and chiefs and stuff mm -hmm. in, in the from the 19th century into the early 20th century. That's not something you do to a minority group that you hate. That's no, a, no, it's no, kind no. of respectful. Extreme well. reverence from a lot of these people. And at the same time, the other end of that is there, there was definitely, prior to that reverence, there was absolutely racial hatred that was... You know, manifested in extermination wars and genocide. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, so that's let's you go to Rome. The reverence comes after, like the the Indian wars in America in the 19th century. That happens in like the plains, but New England, that shit's done in like 1677 after King Philip's War. It's kind of over. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this, this should be this should be it's forgotten that like you know there were there were a genocidal and I mean genocidal both ways in uh, wars between the natives and the Plymouth Co Plymouth Colony and Jamestown Colony in the 17th and maybe early 18th century if you're talking about the south that you know near that 30 percent of the population of, of the colonies wiped out in this war so like they like, they didn't they didn't feel this way about each other in, in, in you know the 1600s but by the time we hit the 1770s it's a different deal Absolutely. Yeah. In New England, 1770s, I mean, 
generations removed from the violence. And in Connecticut, so there was two major wars in New England in the 1600s. There was uh, there was the Pequot War in 1635. And uh, the Pequot were defeated by the English settlers, and a lot of them were like sent away to Ohio. Some of them sold into slavery. But by 1674, um, the New England Confederation, they team up with the rem- remnants of the Pequot on their side, and they fight a coalition of Native Americans in basically the rest of New England, and they beat them. And that King Philip's War is is the deadliest war in American history based on percentage of uh, white colonists killed. Yeah. Um, some like 10%. By the way, I mean, going to the reverence thing, I mean, uh, everyone in Rome, like, oh, we got to kill a Carthage. We got to kill Carthage. You got to kill Carthage. Once Carthage isn't threatening you anymore, as soon as after Carthage is totally gone, oh, I sure missed Carthage. They were such beautiful people. Oh, I can't believe it's so much easier to say that once they're all dead. You know what I mean? But there's also an element of like, look how great Carthage was. We defeated Carthage. Yes, exactly. Look how great we are. And it's the same thing, I think, with the Native Americans. It's like, these people were great, um, you know. But, like, this is a thing throughout all of history. You know, Saladin and uh, whatever the English guy's name was. In the South, we call this... Richard? In the South, we call this strength of schedule. (laughs) It's SEC humor for us. Yeah, that was a good good point. If, like, if the the Powhatan are, were, you know, weak pushover savages, then defeating them in the war meant nothing for the Virginia colony. It didn't mean anything. If they were yeah. if they were great. That's a, that's an excellent point. Well I I, I, I well actually we gotta we gotta test this man. Who's your favorite founding father? Uh Jefferson. Okay. It's, yeah exactly I was gonna say Jefferson wrote wrote about the uh, about the Indians uh, quite a bit. I can't remember his I can't remember his quotes either because I have the memory of a goldfish. But <laughs> you know, unlike unlike in the North, you know, especially considering you had Trans Appalachia and stuff that was a lot more recent and, you know, still ongoing in some parts of, of Western Virginia at the time, the wars. Supposedly, founding fathers modeled part of their government on structures of the, of the Iroquois. Confed- I've never believed yeah, so that. Is there any evidence of that being true? I'm going to read a few quotes for you right now, and hopefully this will be enough evidence. And you can fact check this stuff, but I can I can send you the, <laughs> the resources if you'd like. Okay, so... Um, is 1744. Uh, so there was earlier, there was this guy named Candy Aronk, who was a Huron, who was an enemy of the Iroquois, but he uh, influenced um, he influenced some uh, European nobles um, that had, had went back to Europe. And then um, 1744, there was this thing, there, there was documentation of the Iroquois talking to some of the American aristocrats and telling them that they should form their own confederation. Um, and then recently, soon after that, this thing called the Albany Conference happens, which is, I don't, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but that leads in to later there being the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. And there were actually 200 Native Americans in attendance at this uh, Albany Conference, most of them being Iroquois, um, also known as uh, Haudenosaunee, by the way, is the indigenous word for them. Um so uh, this then, okay, so I'm sorry, it didn't influence the Declaration of Independence and influenced the Articles of Confederation. And it was uh, based on the threat of more direct English rule. Um, so after the Albany Conference, of which the Iroquois were present, and there is very little, there's, there's, it's, it's clear that the Albany Conference then, then turned into the Articles of Confederation, which of course turns into the Declaration, or the uh, Constitution, but there was 200 Native Americans there. Um, John Adams defended the Constitution uh, in a book, 
um, that he wrote about the um, about like how why that why they should have the Constitution. He cited the Haudenosaunee Iroquois multiple times in that book. Madison wrote that that book was influential not only amongst him but also amongst other founding fathers. Um, Benjamin Franklin wrote in private letters as well as publicly stated that he was influenced by the Iroquois. Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1782 that American Indians in the East lived in small societies, never submitted themselves to any laws, to any coercive power or any shadow of government, which very much reminds me of the human farmer idea. Um, and those are the influences that I have. There's one more thing. Oh, yeah. And then this other guy, um, Hector de Crevacoir, whatever. I'm American. I don't pronounce French things right. Um <laughs> I don't have any French listeners. I don't know if you guys do, but I have no interest in... <laughs> it's fine. Um, so at this time, and this is something that Benjamin Franklin specifically wrote about. Um, okay, so Benjamin Franklin wrote in 1753, when an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, which is cultural assimilation, cultural acculturation, if it's from a baby, yet if he goes to see his relatives and makes and make one Indian ramble with them, there is no persuading him ever to return... This guy, um, Hector de Quevacuar, 1782, a little bit after Benjamin Franklin, wrote, um, thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no examples of even one of those Aborigines having from choice become European. So in the, um, like, yes, Thomerson, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, um, and, uh, and Madison all wrote about the influence of Native Americans. And we also know that there were literally thousands of Europeans of European settlers who left and joined the Native Americans, as well as others that were assimilated through being captured. And um, at, in a lot of Native American cultures, especially in the East, they would uh, kill some prisoners and take some in, depending on their age. But there's lots of examples of that. And there is, like it said, no examples of Native Americans choosing to join English society. So there is... And, and so... I bring up the fact, the the writing that thousands of Europeans had joined the Native Americans to tell you that, like, that demonstrates that there is a that there is a lot of understanding between these two groups of people. Um, you know, you don't just up and leave your society and join a different one if you don't know enough about them to know that that's a good idea to do. Like, if they were if they were really blinded in ignorance about Native American ways of life and they didn't know anything about them. Um, then they wouldn't, they would be afraid to do that because they think they were going to get killed. But what's true about the 18th century is that the proportion of people is a lot more native and they were interacting a lot more. And those cultural influences, there's a lot of them that are clear in material culture of English settlers that settle in America. Influences the other direction are clear as well. Um, but the idea that we were being influenced by these other customs of the Native Americans, but not in our government system, especially with all the evidence of like the Albany Conference and specific ratings by Madison, Jefferson and uh, Adams. Like, yeah, they definitely we can argue about how much they influenced it. But yeah, definitely it was influenced at least by the Iroquois and possibly by others. I've always liked the the, the thing about people who, who who literally went native. And, and I, I understand that because it would I'm, the, sh the same thing happened to our ancestors in Europe at some point in, in I don't know, mm -hmm. 10,000, whatever. How many ever, how many ever years BC? There were people who were essentially hunter gatherers and like, y y here's your choice. Do you want to do that? Or do you want to toil the land 
and and grow crops and give them to to a king and like you know get 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 dysentery all the time and uh, you know diseases from your pigs or whatever and scrape by on a you know with just enough calories to survive or would you rather just go live as a hunter gatherer the problem is always it's like inevitably or maybe you know here's the anthropologist maybe he'll he'll fact check me on this inevitably when those people meet the settled people they always lose. That's it. Because even if, if you can, people have argued that the, the life of the natives was happier and better than the life of some of the colonists. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I believe that. But I would believe that it would be better to be an, uh, an Iroquois Native American in, in, in this time period than like a peasant in Russia. I agree with that completely. Yeah. I mean, it's not the nobles that are leaving English society. It's, right, uh, it's right. the peasants, you know. But but you know it doesn't matter because ultimately they're those the settled people. Even if it is less fun to be, you know, a, a peasant dirt farmer, your the society that you create is going to destroy the other one. So it's it's a problem of population density. Um, yeah. Settled societies uh, they sustain a, a much higher population per um, uh, per like land area. So it, there is an inevitability of uh, this trap of social constructions, but. The reason, like, you know, I judge that that society at the time of the 18th century, I judge that society, I look at it and I say, okay, it's the same reason that I look at, you know, the Berlin Wall. Nobody's jumping from West Berlin to East Berlin. You know, you're not jumping into the communist space. It's clear because Native Americans are joining Western society, or I'm sorry, that English people, English settlers are joining Native American society, but the reverse is not happening, that the, at the time, like, you could convince some Europeans to join natives. You couldn't convince a native to join the Europeans. And by some standards, like, yeah, by our standards, by our modern Western standards, it's clear that, like, we would like the life of the English settlers more. But at the same time, it's like that is a socially constructed idea. And, like, we're comfortable where we are. You know, we have a certain life. I wouldn't want to join them at, like, 28. Like, but if maybe if I grew up in it, it would be different. (laughs) Um, somebody went in, somebody, uh, escaped North Korea and they went to South Korea and they went back. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it does happen. I don't know if you've, uh, you know, Malcolm's talked about this. Uh, the, uh, the average amount of sleep that someone gets in South Korea is like four hours or something. Cause they'll, I'm guessing (laughs) that's, I don't know. Who knows? South Korea is rough in a number of ways. Same thing with Japan. They have a crazy work culture. They have a crazy like economic issue with like uh, the price of houses and things. It's they they they're in some trouble. But I don't I don't know about that's going why, back to that's North why Korea. them salarymen go get shit faced so hard because they've been at work for uh, yeah. Well, hey, hey, we 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 have an opportunity to talk to somebody. We we just talked about settled and hunter gatherer peoples, but there is the historical cheat code, the hybrid, the pastoral peoples who kind of mm-hmm. embody some aspects of both, but they don't have the population density problem that the hunter gatherers do. Well, they before the invention of the firearm, they didn't have this problem. We we like we talk about this subject comes up a lot, especially in our live streams, because if you talk about history, eventually you're going to want to talk about the Mongols because they were cool. The uh, pastoral peoples, how like some people say that you shouldn't draw a distinction between them and settled people. Some people say you shouldn't draw a distinction between them and hunter gatherers. I think that they're clearly their own thing, right? Their own middle mode of human existence. 
I'd say they're they are their own thing, but there's also like there's a spectrum between all of these. Like yeah. um, hunter gatherers, you know, might eventually become pastoralists, but what prevents them from fully embracing um, agriculture or pastoralism is uh, would would be their political organization. Um, and there were there there's evidence that in certain places there was um, there were specific policies put in place and specific government systems that were meant to prevent. Um, people from settling and, and turning into these these things that end up being autocratic. Um, and I mean, the there is a lot of evidence that hunter-gatherers, both today and back then, were a lot healthier than most of the people in settled societies, definitely more than medieval farmers. You ever, um, you ever seen the picture of the uh, Aborigines from when they first, when the white guys first got there? And uh, I don't know if, I don't know if that lines up with photography, but the old photos of the Aborigines living hunter gatherer and then the modern ones. So, so the modern Aborigine obesity is crazy. Uh, these guys, they took the picture of the, the old school Aborigine living hunter gatherer. They all looked like bodybuilders, mm -hmm. just <laughs> huge giga chats. Just real cut, right? Like not like, not like ripped, but cut. They had a lot of mass. They did really? not look like yeah. East African guys. They, they, they had a ton of mass on them. You're gonna get okay. in the, you're gonna get in the skull measuring here when you talk about like Aborigines. You mean people who are like Negrita or whatever, okay. or like the Native Americans were famously like taller and a lot mm -hmm. of people taller than the the people who arrived here first. But and, white people were shorter back then because of bad nutrition, from yeah, like a grain based lifestyle. Whereas you when when. <laughs> <laughs> when European explorers visited some Aborigines in these other places, they that wasn't the case. Even for these people who were uncontacted, they were smaller, and no, they weren't writing about the the tall, handsome. Well, actually, this is funny because this is one of the things that you're you're a you're a Hungarian, you're a step guy, you're one of the step peoples. One of the 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 memes in the ancient world about the step people was like you know the the Halani are a tall and handsome people, and that they were just just. They all looked great. They rode around on horses all the time and drank nothing but milk and, and ate meat and mm -hmm. uh, you know, lived the paleo lifestyle. Yeah, seriously. I mean, and like, there's, if you guys know this, like, one of my favorite books, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, but the whole history, like, you can view world history as the history of class struggle. You can view <laughs> world history as, like, a march towards centralization that eventually will end up making Earth look like some crazy autocratic version of Coruscant like you can view it in different ways but like one of the ways to view it is horse riding step people spreading out and just destroying everything and then settling down and then more yep. horse riding people coming up and like it's just it's it's enough to drive you the crazy. cult the cult the, if you go by the current understanding of like genetics and and pre and pre like archaeology the cauldron of Western civilization came from steppe peoples who moved in and slaughtered and, well, they slaughtered the men and uh, took as wives, wonderful euphemism, the women of the people who lived in Europe before them, including like, you know, including the Greeks, Romans, everybody. And this process kept happening, happening over and over yeah. again until, until basically the, I guess the, I guess the, Mong, the Mongols were probably, well, the, whatever, the, 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 the Turks that, Shoot, what were the Turks that invaded uh, in the late medieval period uh, after the Mongols? Whatever. Uh, I, the I, Ottoman Turks? 
there was a name for the Turkish ethnic group that moved in. I can't remember it. But anyway, until the mention of the firearm, these people kept doing this over and over again. And yeah. one understanding, and we made an entire podcast about this, is that you can also look at the history of the world through the lens of military technology. Because ultimately, with the monopoly on force, that does make decide a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It does. And it also, like, the canon, the the, uh, the creation of the canon can be tied to absolutism because of, like, a, a, the canon being such an expensive technology, it really destroyed the power of lesser nobles. They had to submit. that Their their power was destroyed because anybody who could, who could afford a canon would just start, you know, start blobbing. They would just start taking over their neighbors and, like, the more powerful would be more more powerful. And any sort of, uh, any, any sort of, resistance against them would have to be organized in some sort of confederation that was, you know, a little bit more like a union rather than a loose confederacy. It's not Vercingetorix anymore. <laughs> yeah. Don't say that name in front of Bogby if you'll, you'll trigger him. He gets mad yeah. when people apologize for, for the King of for, the Gauls. Yeah, but and cities were, uh, there, there was a thing of people who mm, may have not preferred to live in a city, but, uh, you wouldn't get killed by, uh, you know, roaming bandits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Um, I don't. I, th- I think we've uh, we've uh, we've done a great job here talking about anthropology, something we don't get to talk about a whole lot. Uh, do you have anything to show? Um, I just illegitimate scholar podcast. Check it out. I talk about the same stuff I talk about here. Um, I, I address different topics every week, uh, less than thirty minutes. I try to be. I love doing this more than I love doing that. Like that is very. It's very dense information and it's edited down and I based it off of an outline, but like it's I you'll get a lot of good information in less than thirty minutes is what I try to do. Um about different topics, especially like I do modern stuff, but I use historical references as well as um anthropological uh methods, indigenous resources, things like that. I use mainstream academia, but I don't submit to mainstream academia as the only method of knowledge. Illegitimate scholar podcast and on Twitter, uh, ill underscore scholar Samuel Urban. Thanks. I had a great time. Yeah, me too, guys. Making their way the only way they know how. Let's just.